From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 436. Today's show is brought to you by StoryWorth, Capital One, and Uni Pizza Ovens. Here is your host, Jason Snell. Thank you, Mike. Hello, everybody. We are back for another Mike-less, almost, episode of Upgrade. I am Jason Snell, and I am hosting this episode with a very special guest, returning to Upgrade for the, I actually have lost count, half a dozenth uh, or so time. It is John Syracuse. Hi, John. When you say Mike-less, we both have mics in mm. front of us, but that's okay, right? You didn't hear the Y? In no. There? Is it like tire with a Y? It is. I just put, I just put that together. Yeah, but not not choir because that has a Q U. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, we. That's a different pod. That's not robot or not that we're doing now. That's a totally different podcast that we're doing about a weird English spelling and things. Anyway, uh, no, I just this for this trip. I am just replacing Mike with a series of guys named John. Mm-hmm. As you do. There's so many of us. Why not? Why not take advantage of the bounty? Look, I, I bought the six pack at Costco <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got to use them all. Uh, but we start off with the hashtag Snell Talk question, which I am also going to apply to my guests, which uh, I have again posed myself because I want to know, John, what is your Christmas shopping strategy? Hmm. I mean... I I have to say I'm have never been good at gift giving or buying. My main my main skill lies in the the years that I spent honing my gift asking for abilities as a child. That seemed very important for me to develop as a kid. So I uh, I, I feel like I'm good at that. I've always been good at making lists lists of presents that I want, and I've been good at figuring out how to get my parents to give them to me. And those skills stopped being useful once I left the house. Uh, and now I'm left with nothing. Uh, I not I don't do a good job of buying people things. I don't know what to get people things. It's a problem. So, I mean, my, my strategy, such as it is, is all throughout the year, I have a notes, you know, a document in Apple Notes called gift ideas. And anytime there is any inkling of any kind of gift that anybody might like, I write, the gift ideas, little head, headings for people's names, and then there's like little bulleted lists of gift ideas for them. And then when the holidays come, my strategy is I pull up that document and I hope that there will be some uh, headings underneath people's names that aren't already checked off. And if they are already checked off, then I go to the people and say, what do you want? Give me a list. I need a list. I can't think of anything. Uh, yeah, that's my strategy. Involves a lot of whining and, uh, and uh, occasionally looking at a notes document. This is very much... Um, my strategy too, and my story too. I'm very bad at this. I need people's help. Fortunately, having been married more than 25 years, um, you've got, we've gotten to the point where our strategy is for the last three or four months of the year, if there's something that you would like to buy yourself, don't do mm -hmm. it and tell your spouse instead. Right. Like that's the and, and listeners to this podcast heard me do that a few weeks ago where Mike was talking about the slippers that he liked. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I, I very much had to say, no, I'm not going to go buy them. I'm going to mention to Lauren that this would be a thing that she could get for me. And by mention, do you mean send her the actual link so you make sure you get the exact yeah. ones that you're looking at? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. No, literally sending her a text saying, "Oh, here's just, a thing you could get me," and she does the yep. same for me. 
just exact hyperlinks and you have to know if you link to the site and it doesn't remember the size that you selected you have to put down the size and the color and yeah and if you're thinking well also you can kind of artfully like i was like i don't know which color to pick i'm like you know what i'm not going to specify color we're just going to see what Mm -hmm. happens and in fact more broadly if you're thinking um this is no fun because you're never going to be surprised friends let me tell you if you do enough of them and you do them for long enough in advance you've forgotten everything that you Mm -hmm. sent to your partner and so then it's like oh yeah i did want this and it's actually kind of nice I think for the past, I don't know, three, five years, I don't think I've made it through a Christmas without realizing that there's something I purchased probably for my wife that I forgot to wrap and give to her that I find in a yes. hiding place months later. Yes. Go, oh, I forgot that I got you this for Christmas and I forgot to wrap because I have them all squirreled away all over the place. And then yep. you totally, if, especially if you buy it months in advance, I totally forget about it. Yeah. I bought a piece of art, um, uh, an art print for, um, for Lauren and had it in a tube. And then like <laughs> six months, it, it, like, cause it's, it came in a tube and I just put mm-hmm. the shipping tube like in one of my drawers. And then like six months later, I'm going through and I'm like, what's in this tube? And I opened it up and I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a, a real surprise. Present. Surprise uh, Christmas present in July. And I appreciate your idea that you have a notes document. Uh, I, uh, I have a reminders list called end of year gift ideas. Mm. That is where I put. All the ideas, not only for my family, but also I have the, you know, do something nice for the incomparable hosts. And what's the item going to be, uh, the annual item going to be for the incomparable members who get like something in the mail? I I have them all in there. So that that is my, they're all mixed in together. Because it really, I just, as with so much in reminders, it's literally like, I just want to get this idea down because I know that in two hours, I'm going to be like, hey, I had a good idea. What was it? Mm-hmm. And it's not going to come to me. I think you can get rid of the end of the year or end of year prefix there and just call it gift ideas and change the icon from a snowflake, haha, to a uh, like a, a box or something. Can I do? Because it's like, what about like, uh, you know, just random gifts? Like I have gift ideas for people who I've never purchased a gift for, but I feel like if I had ever had to purchase a gift for them or wanted to, this is what I would get them. I wonder, could I do a box i mean there's squares but i don't also consider consider title case there is a box well yeah you can see that i was just desperate to get to the list when i decided this uh okay john i have i have taken your your advice and you've capitalized you wow look at that look you're like a professional now there's a box and it says and the item has gone down now that you now that you purchased the gift for me actually i discovered that a gift that i gave lauren for our anniversary was on that list so i checked it off done John, as I can tell from the sound of your dog barking in the background, I wanted to do a little follow out to ATP generally because you talk about your life and your house on that podcast, the Accidental Tech Podcast. Also, it's directives as well. No the. No the? Mm-hmm. The re- the, did I say the rectifs? No, you said the Accidental Tech Podcast. Oh, the Accidental Tech Podcast. I was, well, it's a, the, the. Then it would be, the, be T-A-T-P. The quote, no, no, the, the quote mark comes after the the. It's the okay. quote accidental tech podcast if that is its real name mm-hmm. although i do kind of want to call it the rectifs now i think that's kind of fun <laughs> you hear the rectifs i don't know about that merlin that's mm-hmm. like things that my mom would say if she listened to podcasts uh my mom does i went, listen to rectifs and she does say that uh, <laughs> i went um i went to your house i was in your house last week you were you were there too i didn't like break in mm-hmm 
Um, my impression of it was that it was much nicer than I thought, but that's only because I I only knew about it from listening to the complaints of the person who lives there. No, and also it's like Disneyland, like we control the sight lines. That's true. That's true. I didn't go upstairs. You didn't let, so you're sitting on the couch, but above your head was the majority of the peeling paint. And then where oh, you could see in your eye line was the lesser peeling paint. There is some peeling paint in the corner of the ceiling and off to my right uh, in that corner. There's way more than that. It's yeah. everywhere. It's everywhere slightly out of your eye line. Well, the la- John, honestly, after I complimented your house for being nice, the last thing I wanted to do is start pointing out the flaws I thought you're aware of. Yeah, I know. Then you start seeing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I could have pointed them all out to you, but I didn't want to give night. you the satisfaction of that, quite frankly. Um, but I do, um, I, I do. We, we had Chinese food. We recorded a podcast. It's going to be the this week's episode of the Incomparable. We talked about Andor, the Star Wars show. Um, Daisy, your dog, uh, barked a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Her house was invaded by people. I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's a lot. She she barked a little bit, and then she was basically menacing. For the rest of the time she did menace some people most specifically brian hamilton but she did menace some uh mm-hmm. menace some people it's true she smells fear and when she smells fear it makes her afraid mm, interesting and then so she's then she's even there. more on edge yeah she actually was really good with me but like i i have you're a, dog, a dog person i've, I've had dogs afraid. and i understand dogs so I was not afraid of her and I got her, I kind of got her in that way. Although I did, it did strike me that having a dog, I mean, I, I sort of understood it conceptually that you have to deal with the dog for podcasting reasons. Um, but it was only as I sat there and heard her bark that I thought, oh, this would actually be a big problem for mm-hmm. podcasting. And now you get to hear it on your very own podcast. It's good. I mean, it's topical. It's my fault. I, next time I'll say, we usually start the podcast at 1 PM and then you don't have to deal with this. Because she goes off to her doggy play date. Okay, we would have had to make all the uh, people who listen to live to upgrade, which you can do. Oh, yeah, all right. Well, anyway, enjoy. Pacific, Eastern. Uh, but she did. I, I didn't. I, I think I made a poke my head into your office, but basically I didn't see. Uh, I didn't look around in there. I didn't see. You should around. have. I cleaned it for everybody. Mm. I appreciate it. It was very clean. Very, very nice. Very nice house. It's got all the, all the holiday decorations were up. You, too, have a picture from your wedding where you and Tina look like uh like kids playing dress up which is what my wedding picture with Lauren looks <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's exactly the same picture it's nice but uh i and i didn't i, I honestly as we were walking up i was like i know so many stories about things that happen on the, in this house <laughs> it was a little weird it was almost like going to like a movie set or something where it's like i know way you could have gone into my kitchen and and looked at uh how level my uh refrigerator doors are like you could have yeah. checked out the toaster so much you could have done there there is i you know i didn't look at the toaster at all um however i did uh i did take a glass of water out of the tap and then thought it had a funny taste dumped it out and <laughs> you and are, uh you are insane and went to your awesome. uh went to your uh your your filtered water in the brita pitcher instead which tastes which tastes like brita filter it, it, I felt it had no taste, but your your water had a taste to it. There was something there. Oh. I never take tap water and then dump it out. I never do that. And I was like, you know, I bet 
if the tap water tastes like this, I bet there's a Brita pitcher in the in the. Well, first I thought I bet you know the I could get filtered water from the uh, refrigerator, and then of course your refrigerator isn't hooked up to water. I I didn't even know that thing was there. I totally forgotten about it. And so then I I, I pressed the button. And I was like, oh right. So then I, uh, I I saw that there was a Brita pitcher, and I was like, well great. I would have otherwise had the tap water, but I dumped the tap water. Maybe you didn't let it water. run long enough. That might have been a thing too. I did. We did have that conversation that sometimes they tell you you got to run the tap a little bit. So. Everybody else, see, yes, because everybody else is like, oh, the water is fine, but maybe I took the bullet there, and I had the mm-hmm. bad water at the beginning, and then it, it smoothed out. Yeah, now, in, ter- in terms of tasting water, uh, Long Island water, best tasting, where I came from on Long Island. It's, it's right from underneath the island, the sand just filters it all. Filters is great. That's num- number one, uh, mm-hmm. and I think number two is probably maybe New York City uh, water from the upstate reservoirs and number three is Massachusetts and then a, a distance a distant 99th is the places in California that I've been well our water here is excellent because it comes from the mountains it's just up. I mean it's not it's not chlorinated Pennsylvania water I'm not saying it's that bad but uh so speaking of your office I just I wanted to do a quick uh uh check in with you it's been uh, less than a year but like how is your how is that uh, working at home and being an independent uh, content creator and programmer on the internet that isn't going to a job or zooming into a job or whatever every day? I know you were you were remote for a lot of it, as so many of us were. How's that? How's it going? You're you're you switch classes at two point now. You're you're continuing your long game of very slowly replicating drag thing. <laughs> I don't think that's my long game. Like here's the thing about switch class. I Just like. Wait. I, I like working on that app. Obviously, I wanted it so I could have it on my Mac. But then once I've done that, I also like working on the app. I like making Mac apps. It's a, it's a thing I always wanted to do, and now I get to do it. I'm always kind of like looking for excuses to do things to the app to improve it, fix bugs, add features, stuff like that. But it does not make money. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it makes. I'm not saying it makes zero dollars, but I mean, maybe it makes enough money for me to get a nice meal out once a month. Like that's the kind of money. That, so I, the amount of time I spend on that, I feel guilty about because it is not a useful uh use of my time right it's like i should just never work on it again because it is never going to bring in you know enough money to be worth the time i spend on it so i treat it like i treat it like playing destiny like it's a fun thing that i enjoy doing but i don't fool myself into thinking it's work and so that's part of how things are going is like there are lots of things that attract me interestingly not destiny because since i quit my job if you look at my Destiny hours, I'm one of those, you know, sites that tracks how much you play. I am playing like massively less Destiny than I used to, which has surprised me. Um, although now, now that I'm in it, it, just, it, it makes sense to me because I just feel guilty ever, you know, goofing off. But working on Switch Glass is in the category of goofing off, and I have to stop myself from doing it and concentrate uh. more on other things. You know, spend my time on things that actually have a chance of making me more than minimum wage for the hours that I spend doing them. And switch glass ain't it. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's like a hobby, basically, right? And it's, it's. I mean, this is how I feel about when I'm doing like per, uh, Python scripting of a home thing, right? It's like, it's fun, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't pay any bills. Yeah, I mean, but the thing about switch glass is like making applications is a thing that can make you money, just sure. not any of the applications that I've written because they're right. so narrow interest and weird and have probably mm-hmm. made all the money they're ever going to make. So it's like, oh, if you want to make uh, an app, find one that has a chance of making money. Uh, and I'm, you know, so far I haven't gotten there. Okay, well, I have an idea for an Apple Watch app for curling that I'll uh, share with you at a later uh, time. Apple Watch is not a Mac. I know it's not. I know it's. Not. I bet there are good. Honestly, John, I was thinking about this. There are 
there are so many like like people I know there are new Mac apps from time to time, but like the Mac so often feels like uh, a place that nobody really wants to make new apps for, especially utility apps that I feel like you're a couple of steps away from finding some like tapping into some uh, kind of perfect place where there's something that that Mac users want to see. But then again, maybe not. Maybe nobody who's using a Mac cares about like you nice little utilities like they used to. Well, when you say utility apps, like those are the type of apps that I like to make, like, but it's, it's from my, from being raised in an environment where my favorite Mac apps are ones that uh, modified or augmented the system in some way. And that door has been closing for so long that like there are things I want to do with switch glass that I can't do. I have ideas for other kinds of apps that are sort of system modification apps that I just can't do because they're not possible. Like maybe they would have been possible in the old days with Haxies or whatever, but in the on the modern Mac, they're just not possible. If Apple doesn't provide hooks for the functionality you want to mess with, it's, I mean, it's beyond right. my skill to hack into the system to do it. And even if you did, then you have the problem of, okay, you can't sell this on the Mac App Store. So now you're signing up to making your own website to sell these things or using some other third-party reseller or hooking up Stripe or whatever. Like, And I can do all of that. But there's no way that I'm going to make an app that makes enough money to even pay for my time that it would take to make my own, uh, you know, Mac uh, software store that people buy things to. And then I have to do customer support for it. Like that's, the overhead of that is so massive that I would need to come up with an idea that I actually pay for that. And all my ideas are like weird things that modify the behavior of, of the system in a way that Apple does not support, will never support. And honestly, I don't even know if they're possible. Right. And so that's why I just like, I muse about those. But, you know, and that's what I want to make. I don't want to make a notes application to do app or, and, and if you do want to make one, a regular Mac app, not like a utility type thing, then you're basically on the hook to make an iPad and an iPhone one and maybe a watch one because nobody buys a Mac app and uh, and is just satisfied to have the Mac app unless it is Mac specific, right? Right. Like if it if it modifies the Mac like my thing does, no one wants Switch Glass on, well, they probably do want an iPad. Sorry, everybody. But no one wants it on their phone or their watch. But if you make a Notes app, people are going to want it everywhere and it's going to have to sync. And then now you're talking about a real app and you probably, you know, so... Anyway, I, I try to I try to limit my hours on switch glass and front and center. I get it. I get it. I mean, what what are you doing if it, if those things don't pay the bills, what pays the bills? Is that is that working up an idea for some more ATP merch or is it I mean, cuz otherwise other than programming, is everything else you're doing that pays the bills podcast related? Yeah, I mean, there's there's all the stuff that's behind the scenes in terms of the ATP store, for example. Like, uh, I I tend to make all of the shirt designs that aren't done by professional designers. I do all the you know the, the getting those images ready, uploading them, specifying the products, working with the stores to get that stuff online at the little ATP.fm/store page. It's a dinky little HTML page. I'm the one who updates that and. You know, like, and you know, just doing the show notes every week, gathering links, doing research, reading things, uh, watching videos, everything that needs to be done uh, for the show um, and for my multiple shows, right? And yeah, that, when I spend time doing that, I can now spend more time doing that and not feel so rushed when I'm doing it. And that counts as real work because podcasts actually do pay the bills. I like the um, fact that you're doing merch stuff because... I feel like I, Mike and I talk about it a bit, but we feel like that's one of the great unexplored aspects of a lot of what we do. I know that he and Gray do a good job with Cortex with that, but like I felt like with Six Colors and The Incomparable and with Upgrade that 
there's more to be done there, right? Like anybody who has bought a, a sweatshirt from us or something knows that like it's super sporadic. <laughs> and we do sometimes think, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to get a design and we do it and it's fun. But there's no like real plan or discipline put into like here's when we're going to do our merch and here's what the designs are that are possible and what are we going to do we we don't like we don't do that and so it's either either we uh, adjust our schedule to do that or we find somebody to help us with it but um it's a real thing and and all the new ATP merch is um you know would would that have happened without you putting time on it uh, Maybe. I mean, I, I was always doing this, but again, now I don't have to do it in such a frantic rush. I don't have to like sacrifice sleep to do it. Like I can do it during normal working hours. And it's just the normal bookkeeping stuff or like obviously the chicken hat involved me specifically because I was going back and forth with the studio need folks with the fabric samples and getting that thing, you know, the, the way we wanted it. Um, but even just things like, uh, you know, we do have a fairly regimented sales. We, we do a holiday sale. Towards the end of the year, uh, we do a pre-WWDC sale, which is kind of a relic from when we used to want people to have the shirts so they could wear them at WWDC. That doesn't really matter anymore. Um, and, you know, we try to have sales at regular intervals. When the, and the the winter-fall sales, we sell the, like, long-sleeve warm stuff and the winter hats. And in the summer ones, we sell T-shirts. Um, but all year, kind of like the gift ideas document, I'm always thinking of what would be a good idea for a t-shirt designer for some piece of merch that we could do that we haven't done before. And those come to me at random intervals. And when they come, I have to, you know, strike while the iron is hot, come up with the design. Maybe I throw it away because it actually wasn't a good idea to begin with. Um, we've been cruising on these uh, these M1 shirts for a while just yeah. because that was such a nice coincidence that Apple did that. And I enjoy making the little chips on the back and everything. And those will probably continue to trundle along but i'm looking for you know the ch other things like the chicken hat or even even the mugs like weird stuff that we haven't done before that it turns out people like and we try right. them out and we see if people like them sometimes they do sometimes they don't apparently people love chicken hats uh they didn't really like pins so we <laughs> haven't done pins for a while uh but yeah just uh try that's that's more of a creative endeavor like sitting down and trying to come up with some designs that you think will print okay on a shirt that are funny and interesting that will make people want to buy one as somebody who uh, you have definitely told the stories of having bought products that you love because you want to have backups for when they're inevitably discontinued. And I have done that too. Um, not as much as you, but I've definitely done that where it's like, I, I, oh no, they made a new version of this thing that is no good. And they're still, the old one is still available. I'm buying another one of those <laughs> right now before they go out of, uh, out of stock forever. But like the chicken hat, took it to a whole new level, right? Because you were, as you mentioned, you work with Studio Neat to replicate a hat you love that they don't make anymore. Um, you never, did you ever send them your hat or did you just sort of describe it and they tried to figure out what your hat I was? I didn't send, they, they asked and I refused because when am I going to send them my one original hat? No, it's not going to happen. Um, but I sent them many, many pictures, many pictures with rulers laying on top of it, with the prototypes laid on top of the thing, like just so many pictures of so many dimensions the hat turned inside out so you could see how it's constructed uh there were lots of images going back and forth on slack to work up the the design of the new hat and does it is it a good match yeah like i mean the, one of the last round of things the last prototype you can lay it on top of my hat and they are exactly the same dimensions the only difference as i said on the show is the material is not as thick we got as thick as we possibly could from the same company that made the material but they just don't make material as thick anymore interesting um, but, but, 
And and I again, I, I would tap that as a feature because already people bought the chicken hat and wore it and they're like, I cannot believe how hot this hat is. I'm like, can you imagine if it was twice as thick? Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people who's always cold. Uh, most people are not like me. So I think the thinner chicken hat is an advantage. Are you going to do a second run? Well, we've already done multiple runs. We've already, we've already massively underestimated how many people wanted these and scrambled to get another order. And in fact, we have a third huh. order coming in right now. So by the time you listen to this, you may be able to go to atp.fm slash store and buy a new chicken hat. Uh, but and either way, we're going to announce when they're available on uh, the ATP podcast because oh, there was a here? backlog of people who wanted them and couldn't get them. You don't want to do it here? I mean, they're not. They just shipped from our manufacturer okay. to Cotton Bureau. They haven't arrived at Cotton Bureau yet, and we don't want to put them up in the store until they've arrived. Because what if they get lost in the mail or something? Right. Cotton so Bureau has a Cotton Bureau. Uh, Cotton Bureau has a that. let us know when you if you yep. when this is back in stock if you want it thing on yep. their site too for people who have clicked that button. And and that's how we know. That's how we hope we know how many we should order for this right. final batch. It's how many people were still clicking on the. Let me know when this is back in stock. You say final, but what's going to happen next is that in a year or two, what you're going to do is you're going to do the revised chicken hat that comes in a color and has a different thing on it and is a. Yeah, we were already talking about like doing embroidery instead of a tag mm -hmm. or whatever. Even for this batch, and I said no for everything during this holiday season. Let's just make them all the same because it's too complicated. This is V1. This is the first edition chicken hat. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll never do it again. That's the other thing about speaking of having backups and stuff. Lots of people, including me and my kids, sometimes they have a shirt and it's like, we haven't sold that shirt in four years. And people are like, oh, I've worn out that T-shirt. I would love a second one. So we may, maybe one of the next ideas that we're going to do is a like throwback sale where we sell a bunch of shirts we haven't sold in years and years. Right. That's a good idea. Yeah. I have a little bit more... Um housekeeping to do i wanted to mention uh of course we have upgrade plus if you love the show and want more of it you get no ads and bonus content every week and access of course to the real fm members discord get upgradeplus.com five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year and from now till december 17th you can save 20 percent on an annual plan just find out more at giverelay.com or just use the code 2023 holidays at checkout you'll get 20 percent off your first year of an annual subscription to upgrade plus and then plans renew at the full price after year one. And also go, if you have not yet, to nominate your favorites at uh, upgradies.vote for the ninth annual Upgradies. Voting is only open for another week. So please do it now. It helps us a lot. Uh, allows the voice of the Upgradians to be heard in the Upgradies, which we'll be releasing at the end of the year, as is our tradition. I believe it'll be on Boxing Day this year so we need we need those votes in by next week by next monday so please give it give it a little bit of time and uh thought and and we appreciate it also uh i have a brief amount of follow-up that i just wanted to throw in here uh before we take our first break uh listener tim from the ipad pros podcast sent in a photo uh that was great his uh they went to the hospital he and his partner um to check in on the progress of the their pregnancy. Um, one thing led to another. Tim happened to be wearing his upgrade hoodie when they went to the hospital. And that means that Tim was wearing the upgrade hoodie when his child was born uh, two months early. And the everybody's home and fine now. And it's I think it's been uh, a couple of months. But um, so shout out to Tim for... Uh, showing off the podcast during a major life event. Love it. Also, uh, here's an interesting one. I heard this from a few people inside Apple too, who were kind of surprised by it. 
Apple Vice President of Software Engineering John Stofer has left Apple to become the the genius in charge of uh, technology for Roblox. Roblox. What do you think about this, John? Um, I mean, everybody, if you, there are lots of reasons to get a new job, including wanting a change and wanting a new challenge. And my understanding is that John Stouffer's kids, kid, kids are Roblox fanatics. And so that's, uh, that's an interesting thing too. But, uh, Mark Gurman reported this and pointed out that like a lot of Apple people at the VP level, which is one down from the senior VPs that report to Tim Cook, there's been a lot of, uh, and there's like a hundred, 150 of them. And there've been a bunch of them leaving lately. I mean, yeah, so when people high up in Apple leave, I think there's two kinds of departures. One, we get less of these these days, but it used to be a big thing. Uh, they leave because they're vice presidents because they've been with Apple since 1999, and they have so much stock options that they never need to work again. Uh, so that's why they leave, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm rich, and I've been here out of a sense of loyalty, but at a certain point, I go, you know what? I don't need to work anymore. My Apple stock is worth so much money, I'm out of here. And the second kind is uh, I haven't been with Apple since 1999, but I am kind of a senior VP. I'm probably not going to go any farther. And Apple is not where the action's happening. You know where the action's happening? Roblox. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, that's not a joke. Like Roblox went from nothing to making tons of money. It is a new different kind of business. And if you want to go somewhere with growth potential that's going to pay you a ton more than Apple pays you, go to one of these companies that has a, you know this amazing money spigot. Back in the day, it might have been Candy Crush. Today, it's Roblox. Uh, it's just a question of whether you can stomach how these companies make money. Uh, but that, that question may also increasingly apply to Apple as well. So if you've been in Apple for a while and you think you've reached your limit of how far you're going to go in this company and, and you want to go somewhere where they're going to pay you a lot more than Apple pays you and have a much more upside with their stock or whatever, someplace like Roblox is where it's at. Some new and Apple's not a new up and comer, right? So I think those are the kind of departures you see at the, at the VP level now. It's like, well... I want to do something else. I want to be. I want to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond, and I want to get paid more money. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, this is, and I, I, I know we've been saying it here for a long time, and I know ATP, you guys have talked about it. Like, brain drain is a serious threat for Apple, right? They, they have a bunch of people who've been there since the since the beginning of this sort of era of uh, Steve Jobs' return and Apple's massive growth, and they have a lot of money and. They and 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 they don't need to work necessarily. A lot of them, and then I think with somebody like this, I imagine it's also the case that he he looks at this and says, "Well, Craig's not leaving, so I have nowhere else to go, and I want a new challenge." Right? And, like, and he might he might not want Craig's job either because being not. Craig is different than having Craig's job at Roblox. Because in Roblox, you like you know what the deal is at Apple. If you have Craig's job, your your influence is kind of. Set, you know how what it's going to be like in, in Apple, whereas in Roblox, the CTO or the head of whatever might have much more influence on the direction of that it's company true. than Craig has on the influence on the direction of Apple. Hmm. That's also true. Um, looking for a new challenge, though. I, I just I keep coming to that. Like I, I totally get it. It's all, it's also more money. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> sure, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But at some point, if you've got all the money, then more money is like, oh, more of that stuff. Okay, but maybe not. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't have all the money. I don't know. Also, we've been talking a lot about um, Apple in China and about Apple's uh, chip design prowess and Taiwan semiconductors prowess in building, in making chips and and reducing the 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 size of the chips. And you know, but the there's so much 
wrapped around this, right? It's the geopolitical issues and the technical issues. And and so we've talked about it a lot. I just wanted to mention a report from the Wall Street Journal pointing out that tomorrow, as we record this, Tuesday, December 6th, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is showing up at a, a ceremony for the opening or the it's like groundbreaking, except they call it like a tool in ceremony. It's like they is that they stick the the. I don't know whether that means they stick a, a shovel in the ground or whether they open the factory or they're loading things into the building or what. But it's a it's a ceremony at the new TSMC plant site in Phoenix, uh, which is this part of this idea of like the U.S. wants to induce chip makers to not just make their chips in places like Taiwan, but also in the United States. And this is a uh, so and Arizona and Phoenix have been trying to do this for a little while now. They had that one that fell through. But this thing is seems to be going and happening. Um, A little tidbit from the Wall Street Journal story about this that I thought was interesting is uh, TSMC executives have said it isn't easy to recreate in America the manufacturing ecosystem they have built over decades in Taiwan, drawing on local engineering talent and a network of suppliers, including many in East Asia. TSMC founder Morris Chang said the cost of making chips in Arizona may be at least 50% higher than in Taiwan. So it's an interesting thing that, the, and obviously Apple is a huge uh, customer of TSMC and may be a customer of them for the chips here. Um, could be just this is the price you pay if you want to diversify if you want chip making in America and you want to diversify your chip making so that your eggs are not all in one basket but still from a pure economic standpoint 50% higher is quite a quite a, a penalty to pay well from a strategic perspective everyone's just got to eat this because it, i think you know if it, it was always theoretically untenable and now it's becoming more practically untenable to have such important functionality so far from our the U.S.'s sphere of influence, right? To have so much manufacturing happening in China, which is a country that we don't see eye to eye on on a lot of things, uh, and to have TSMC being in Taiwan, also a potentially volatile region, uh, not to mention the fact that none of the companies are, you know, American companies. Intel used to be the big dog in uh, semiconductor manufacturing, but no more. Right. So the Apple's sort of long term strategic project that is going to continue on long past the tenure of Tim Cook is to basically undo everything Tim Cook did in terms of manufacturing and not so much get us out of China, but remove Apple. Apple needs to remove its dependency on China. And that's going to take literal decades like and it's just this long project. Right. And then the U.S., their their problem is. We used to be important in semiconductor manufacturing, and now we're not anymore. And semiconductors are not going away and are not going to become unimportant anytime soon. So America, it would make sense for us as a country and a government to invest money to, yeah, you know, to get semiconductor manufacturing expertise in this country. Having TSMC have a plant here, that's better than nothing. What would yeah. be even better, and I'm sure Intel would agree, is, hey, Intel says, hey, give us billions of dollars in government money, and we'll get better at making semiconductors again. Like, you know, There's lots of different ways this can go, but there's no avoiding. This is a task that everyone has to undertake, and it's going to be expensive and painful and time-consuming for everybody, for Apple, for the U.S. government. And in the end, we're not going to be able to make things in, as inexpensively, right? But that's that's a strategic cost. The same way we subsidize corn out the wazoo and subsidize oil, 
we need to subsidize semiconductors. They're just as an important commodity in the future, and it's not good for us to be dependent on Taiwan Semiconductor. Like, and I, when I mean us, I mean the little rest of the planet. It's dependent because they're the only people who can make the very best chips. And everybody in the world wants a phone three, uh, manufactured at three nanometers, right? Also, the fundamental issue of like, how do you get the manufacturing ecosystem that they built over the decades <laughs> in Taiwan? A lot of money. How do you get drawing on local engineering talent? How do you get mm -hmm. a network of suppliers? How do you get all of the local knowledge that already exists in Taiwan? And the answer is you have to do it, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean it is going to happen, but if you don't start this, it won't happen, right? Mm -hmm. So by doing this, you're like, oh, well, now we're going to get you know, we're going to have some of our engineers come in, but we're also going to hire engineers in the U.S. who are American engineers. And we're going to, we're going to, oh, this supply thing is really inconvenient. But now that we're here, there is a financial motivation for somebody else to set up an alternate supply line that runs into Arizona or into the U.S. somewhere. And that is, you know, and, and the only way you do that is by spending, as you said, by spending the money essentially at this point to make it happen. Because otherwise, if all else is equal, you will end up with just the the TSMC factories that are in Taiwan. So if, if uh, the U.S. strategically wants this to happen, and they're, you know, again, not saying it will happen that way, but it could happen that way. And it's not going to, it's not going to, like when they talked about the, the Mac Pro assembly in the U.S. or, or they talked about why, why doesn't Apple assemble other products in the U.S.? I mean, the answer is there's so many things that feed into the assembly and the supply chain, and that stuff is all in and around China. Uh, well, how do we solve that? Like, you can't just snap your fingers and build a factory and say we solved it, right? Because the whole there's a whole web of things in an ecosystem around it. Um, and so if you want to do something like this, yeah, you make the commitment, you take the hit, and you say, yeah, this is going to be hard, and it's going to be expensive, and it's going to cost you know, half again as much as a premium at least to do this, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you have to you have to invest. Investing means putting money up front and whether it's Apple investing or the U.S. government doing taxpayer money investing, that investment should hopefully pay off. And the other factor here that I always think about in my darker moments is that in the same way that it's not great to have manufacturing in China uh, and, you know, or in volatile regions like, uh, you know, potentially volatile regions like Taiwan, Gathering enough engineering talent to a particular location in the U.S. does sometimes present a challenge because the places that are best able to support large manufacturing infrastructure where we have lots of land relatively inexpensively and, you know, uh, quote unquote, business friendly laws and regulations are also places where it's harder to get engineering talent because people who are, are you know, have engineering skills, they're able to get a good paying job anywhere in the country don't want to live in a state where abortion is illegal and the, the company, you know, the company factory gets bomb threats because you give trans people health care. Uh, increasingly, that is becoming a problem in our country. So how do you get all the best engineers to come to your place and want to live there? You have to have you have to be in one of the U.S. states that is less oppressive, let's say. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's something people don't think about. Oh, Texas, great business laws, but geez, not great human laws. We saw that with a lot of the employee resistance to moving a lot of Disney businesses from LA yeah, exactly. to Florida too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and again, you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, everything's too expensive. The teachers can't live in the city. Like it's not like there aren't problems elsewhere, but you know, there are different challenges. You know, being able to uh, have your employees afford housing if you're paying them well is surmountable. 
but it, you know, employees not willing to go to your state because you don't recognize their humanity or are willing to give them health care is only uh, able to be overcome at the ballot box. It's certainly a, a big challenge in general, also just to create places like I mean, I, I, this is sort of what I was saying before, but you know, you have to create a place where people want to be, as you pointed out, and it needs to be a place where there are options because you don't, you also don't want to have. Like, well, you can move to this place that's out in the middle of nowhere where we do this thing. It's like, okay. And, and we're the only we're the only place where you can and, get a job. So if you want to change jobs, you're going to You're going to have to move uh, who knows where, right? Like that, what you want though is, you know, if I'm Arizona State University, right? Or the University of Arizona, I'm like, well, this is really interesting. What are we, are, are we training, uh, you know, chip manufacturing and chip engineers? And like, are we training people to do these jobs? Because we're if we're not- people to, to oversee the manufacturing by flying on a, on a flight from California to to uh, China to oversee the manufacturer and other people's plants. Yeah, well, so so it's, it's that like, well, can we build a, can we build an ecosystem? And you end up in the situation too, where it's like, well, and then when Intel is like, well, we also want to build a plant. It's like, well, the place to build it is next to the one that, that TSMC has, right? Because- this is like Apple's when they wanted their self-driving car uh, project to succeed and they opened an office literally right next door to mm-hmm. where the QNX offices were in uh, in Ontario because that was who they were hiring. Or the modem, why it was the Intel now Apple modem business in San Diego? It's because that's where Qualcomm is, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, and, the, and you build up a whole ecosystem of people and related companies and they all are thinking about um, you know, cellular radios and 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 chip development and all of that in San Diego, and and they're all there. So uh, then you you know then the competitors come and and it all just kind of builds out from there. So we'll we'll see, but you got to start somewhere. And uh, and so TSMC uh, tool in whatever that means in Phoenix tomorrow. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Storyworth. If you're spending time with loved ones for the holidays, there are chances that you're going to hear a ton of stories. There are ones that you love to hear, and there are ones that you've probably heard too many times. But if you ever wondered what it would be like to actually document those timeless stories, it can be challenging to imagine writing an entire book of life memories. Where would you start? Well, StoryWorth makes it fun and easy. This is how anyone can write a book about their life. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a single life-related question that you pick from their collection, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, what's the farthest you ever traveled? And then all they have to do is reply to that prompt of a story. They can include images if they want to. And then after a year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved one's stories, memories, and even photos in a keepsake book. Millions of stories have been told to StoryWorth because they make the process so simple. Get started with your loved one for the holidays, and before you know it, you'll be able to reflect on those timeless stories together for generations to come. Genuinely, the thing that I find the most awesome about StoryWorth is the way they word the questions and the types of things that they can give you to ask that generate stuff that you never would have thought to ask on your own. I think this is an amazing gift idea for someone in your life as a way to continue building the history of your family that can be kept and passed on. I think that it's something very special uh, and it truly is creates something memorable and something to pass on. I think it's amazing. I've tried it out and, and I think it's super cool. Help your family share their story this holiday season with StoryWorth. Go to storyworth.com slash upgrade and you can save $10 on your first purchase. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash upgrade to save $10 on your first purchase at storyworth.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to StoryWorth for their support of this show and Relay FM.
All right, John, when we were putting the show notes together, you suggested that we maybe talk about AI stuff. You suggested sort of AI uh, generating, uh, there are all these generating like Lenza, generating your your uh, pictures of yourself based on uh, an AI training model. I know that uh, uh, I saw Andy Bayo and Matt Howie did this on and, and reported back on their blogs. Uh, we've gotten to the point where Yes, it's sort of like a, a a capability to upload a few pictures of yourself and then have an AI generate um, pictures of you, just like that don't exist that come from who knows where. Yeah, I, I know Mike has talked about this on other shows, and he's not here now, so he can't, right. Uh, we haven't <laughs> talked about it on an upgrade because Mike has saved that for mm-hmm. other shows, <laughs> and I, I've talked about it on ATP and on Rectifs, uh, but I. I feel like this is a new the next the next obvious step has come to pass, and it's time to you know think about that a little bit as well. So the the thing that's going around these days is not what Matt Howie and Andy Bayo do because they kind of like put this together themselves. Right, um, but it's been productized now. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is like an existing product, like the the app that I was uh, that you mentioned for Lenza. I think it already did a bunch of like AI processing, like, oh, it'll put something in the background that it'll cut you out or make you cartoony or whatever. But they added a feature to their app, I think, recently that's like, hey, upload, you know, 10 to 20 pictures of yourself. They call them selfies, but... Uh, I, Boy, that that huh. the definition of that term is really stretching. Anyway, ten to twenty pictures of yourself, and then they will auto generate a certain number of sort of what they call avatar pictures. Like if you wanted to put it as your Twitter avatar or something, you know, it's a head and shoulders shot of yourself, and they'll generate them in different styles. Here's you as an anime character. Here's you as an astronaut. You know, uh, definitely gender stereotype styles, but you do get to pick the gender ahead of time. So if you, if you pick boy, they make you an astronaut, and if you pick girl, you're a fairy princess. Not oh, nice. Lenza. Anyway. Um, because girls can't be astronauts and boys can't be fairy princesses. Anyway, setting that aside, uh, they'll make you a bunch of those images using one of the, the open, you know, uh, I think it's stable diffusion they're using one of those, one of the, the AI image processors that, that exists. Right. But here's where this is different because the, the previous discussion we've had about this, like, uh, you know, can AIs make art? Is it going to put regular artists out of business? Uh, is this, uh, you know, s- sustainable? Are people going to do this instead of paying humans? Uh, all that discussion. This really crystallizes it, though, because now here's the thing we were discussing in the abstract in concrete. You have to pay the Lenza app to for it to generate these images for you. If you're not Matt Howard or Andy Bayo and can't figure out how to like you know rent yourself an instance in AWS and throw this open source software on it and upload the model file and generate, it's like you could do that yourself and you'd be paying AWS however many pennies it costs to, to do this. But ever most people aren't going to do that. They're just going to download an app. And the app is charging money uh, and in, and not not a small amount of money. Like, I think the app is like if you do a one week trial of their $50 a year subscription during that one week trial, you can then buy batches of images yeah. for anywhere from five to ten dollars per batch of 100 to 200 images. So they're not cheap. Right. And this this company, Lenza, put together all these pieces of like you pay us the money. We have a job system. We'll take your money in and in-app purchase on our iOS app. We'll kick off the job that runs through Stable Diffusion, which we didn't make, but it's open and you're able to use it. And it will grind out a bunch of images and then we'll send them to you, right? But the thing about Stable Diffusion and all these other things is they're trained on huge sets of images that were included in that model without the consent of the people who made those images. Yeah. That's just a fact. Like there's no way you can get millions of images getting consent from everybody who made them. They're not all, oh, we only trained it on free and open images. No, no one even tries to claim that. Or if they do, they're lying. Like some, there was a story in Ars Technica that we talked about ATP where someone found 
pictures from their from their doctor's office, like medical images were found in a training in a training set for one of these AI model things because, hey, they were publicly accessible on the web because they weren't protected on whatever like the the uh, electronic health record website was. Sure. Like, no copyright intended. Yeah. Uh, they harvest anything that is publicly available on the web and they put it into this model and then they charge people money for images generated based on that stuff, right? And this and that, you know, that really makes you think much harder about the 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 conceptual stuff of like, well, you know, these images are all on DeviantArt and they're not behind a password. I can just go to the DeviantArt website and I can click around and I can look at them all with my eyeballs. So that means it's also okay to have a computer model consume those images and then charge people money for images generated based on the things that we consumed, that is so different than, yes, I put this on my blog. Yes, I put this on my DeviantArt page. I allow you to look at it with your eyeballs. But no, I don't allow you to feed it into a computer program and then charge people money to generate images based on the thing that you fed into your computer program. Because I never consented to that. We don't have a business deal where I get paid a fraction of a cent for every image you generate. Like, we ne you never even talked to me. You took my image. Your program does not work without my image and the other millions of images that you put in there. And then you charge people money. That system that you made, all the parts that you wrote on it, don't actually make anything. Like, if you don't have that image input, you there's nothing for you to sell. Like, that whole thing of where you take my money and put my job in a queue and generate a bunch of images and let the people download it, that generating the image part does not work without all of the images that have been harvested from people who did not consent to it. And now you're charging money for it. So rather than being a technical curiosity and making us think about creativity and it's just, you know, oh, I download Stable Diffusion and generate a bunch of images on my thing here and I'm not using them to be uh, header images on my commercial website and I'm not, you know, these people are selling them inside their apps. And that, I hope that really, I mean, as usual, technology outruns both ethics and the law. We do need to come up with a, some kind of legal framework to deal with this because even within pre-existing frameworks that don't know anything about AI image generation, the idea that you would take someone's work without their consent and then charge money for a derivative work is slam dunk. No, you can't do that. And the, the you know, the, the sort of, uh, what, is, what was it called? Like whitewashing for morality or whatever. Oh, you just put AI over it. And now everything is legal and everything's yeah. okay. No, it's, it's exactly the system that, we, that we've always known. You can't just grab an image off the web and put it on the cover of your magazine and say, oh, I'm selling my magazine on the newsstand, but we just found the image on the web. It's, web, it's fine. Like it's freely available on the web. I, I, I mean, the, the cynical part of me says the, the only way this will change is if uh, if corporations get involved, because you think about like, well, what what moves copyright law? Yeah, find, you find Mickey Mouse inside the training sets. Exactly. What 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 moves copyright law is Disney wanting to hold on to copyrights, and other big companies that have intellectual property wanting to hold on to the copyrights as long as they can, and the trademarks. And, and, you know, and also, like one one really pissed off person who has enough money to pay for a lawyer who sets a precedent. Yeah, but I would so so for for yes for courts. But my point is what affects the law and mm, getting like, 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 like a law passed about this. Yeah, yeah. And the answer is the, the, the uh, intellectual property needs of large corporations who have lobbyists who go to Congress in the U S mm -hmm. and say, um, have you seen this stuff? It's yeah, real you bad. Can make, you can make an avatar where you look like you're in the MCU. Uh oh. Yeah. And they're using and they're using our art, our copyrighted art as and the training for the our model. Public website. It's all built on the backs of copyright infringement, and this can't be allowed. Because and and I know, you know, I know this is a complicated issue, but uh 
and I don't know how courts will rule about it, but in my gut, <laughs> if I were like somebody advising people in Congress about uh, what to do about this, if anything, I would say if it's copyrighted and hasn't been given permission to be a part of a training model, you can't use it, period. That should be the law. That if I own the copyright on it, you can't train on it. Yeah, like everything that is not explicitly, like doesn't explicitly give rights, the fault is if you do make a creative work. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we're not saying that, like only Disney has copyrighted stuff. If you make a drawing on a napkin and post it on your website, you that's copyrighted to you unless, unless you say that it's given away by some license that is more free than that. The issue is not, oh, you can't make a tool that that emulates the style of an artist because I own that, right? That's like that's like copywriting a recipe. You can copyright the text that that goes around the recipe and you can copyright the photos that you took of the of the dish, but the concept of what uh, what the ingredients are that make the dish is actually not copyrightable. This is a little like that, which is sort of like, you know, if you want to say this is in the style of me, my art style, I, I that that not being actionable is understandable. But if I find out that the way you do it is because you have gotten all of my output, which I own the copyright on, and I didn't give you permission, and you fed it into a computer, and now you can sell my art style, I would, I, again, I don't know what the current law is, but but I would probably advocate that that not be allowed. That if if I'm not giving you permission to train your model based on my artwork, you can't train your model based on my artwork. Yeah. And then, like, the, for example, the correct way to do that, like, this is all well established law. Like, you know, the, just think of like the iMac, for example. Like, you can sue the company that makes a computer that looks like the iMac for like trade dress or whatever, but you can't sue the person who makes an iron that's, that's translucent and teal. Right. And they're just, they're just copying the style of the iMac. Right. And there, no one is going to be confused and think that when they buy this iron, they're getting an iMac. Right. So if you want to make a thing that says, you know, in the style of uh, whatever popular artist, and you want to do that with AI, hire someone to draw a bunch of things in the style of that artist, feed those images into your model, and you're off to the races. But the reason the reason nobody does that is one, it costs a non-zero amount of money. And two, you know how many images you would need to feed into the model to get good results? A lot. That's why they scrape the entire web and pull those images. So how much yeah. money would it cost you to have a, a, a huge set of artists drawing essentially generic non-MCU infringing superhero art, just churning them out picture after picture of different kinds of superheroes. Again, making sure you're not accidentally drawing Iron Man, which is copyrighted or whatever, like, you know, just MCU style superheroes. How many thousands and millions of those pieces of art would you have to pay to have created to then feed into a model so you can auto-generate avatar pictures? Or you could just use one of the existing models that was trained on some unknown amorphous yeah. set of stuff and probably says somewhere in the model that you're not even allowed to do what Lens is doing. And then you don't have to worry about any of it because no one knows what's in the model and or they have a list of what's in the model, but no one's ever going to look at it because it's too many things to go through. And yeah, it's going to take, uh, you know, someone like Disney saying, hey, we noticed your MCU, uh, you know, avatar generator is making some stuff that looks familiar. Can we look at what you fed into the training set? And they say, oh, we didn't even make the training set. It's from some university. Why don't you talk to them about it? And round and around we go. But I, I feel like this is just so clearly over the line. And people don't think about it that way because they think, oh, hand wavy computer magic. But none of that computer magic works without input being fed to it of thousands and millions of images. And those thousands of millions of images had to come from somewhere. And and like if you think about it, what it, is there a viable economic model for AI image generation? Would if you could get consent from every one of those artists, they would get 
0.0000000001 cent for every image that's generated, no one would agree to that because it's not right. a good deal economically. So I think if you actually had to do a system like Lenza in a way that complies with the spirit of existing laws, it would be economically unfeasible. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, the, the truth is, though, that that laws and the courts are lag so far behind technology that um, it might be years before this gets dealt with. But it does it does feel like um, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, but it does feel to me like when it catches up, this is going to this this is going to be tough for this AI kind of generative stuff, because you're right. Once it starts getting product productized and used um, in uh, for profit products and, you know, or in creative things that are, are then sold or even copyrighted, right? Like you get mm-hmm. to the point where um, when it's a an interesting intellectual exercise in a university lab somewhere and it goes and becomes, no, no, this is big business now. I do think that is the moment where everybody kind of goes, what's all this then, right? Like what's going on here? And the people who've got vested intellectual property concerns are going to get involved and then there's going to be trouble. Because I do think that the artist who has all their arts stolen is probably not going to be heard. But yeah, the the big company that's got that's got uh, their all their IP, which is so much of what the value of their company is, uh, stolen, you know, it, from their perspective, stolen and used to feed an AI model, they're not going to be happy. Yeah, and I think like be, setting aside new legislation that, you know, once Disney wakes up to this will eventually come along. Within the existing laws, I think you could win a case against one of these companies. If Disney decided they wanted to go after Lenza or Stable Diffusion, or you know, probably Lenza, because Stable Diffusion probably has a license that says you can never use these for commercial. I don't know the details, but the academic things are always kind of like hands off, don't use this for commercial purposes or whatever. But if Disney wanted to, just existing laws that would say, hey, we found our copyrighted work in your training set. And then they would have to convince a judge and a jury in some farcical trial, kind of like all the, the trials we had about copying people's APIs and other things where it's hilarious us techies that no one understands what an API is or whatever. They would have this long, multi-decade trial that would probably go all the way to the Supreme Court to try to convince people that, yes, if you take our image of Iron Man and you put it as one of a million images into your thing and you spit out something and we weren't compensated for it, uh, that's not right. Because I think in the end, setting aside all the technical stuff, regular common sense people understand that, especially since it's not going to be one picture of Iron Man. It's going to be hundreds or thousands of pictures of Iron Man. And the, the defense lawyer is going to say, look, none of the images we generate look anything like Iron Man. And it's like, yeah, but you you can't make them without images of Iron Man. If you if we all took away our stuff, you'd be left with a model with no input. And now you can't generate anything. One of the other scenarios here is if they'll, if they if um, this all gets passed through the courts is like, well, there's no law against it and we can't really see it. So we're not going to rule against it. You know, that is another thing that ends up generating a desire. Yeah, that's a fine. We'll make a law. <laughs> to the law being changed. Yeah. Because you got to make the more specific law. But, but I think uh, based on existing laws, you could win that case. And also it would be a lot easier if we just had specific laws that address AI image generation and that would work. And, and the, the other thing about this is like, there are tons of tools that use the same technique as AI image generation that do not require being fed. Like even just, you know, content aware fill that's been in Photoshop for however long now, the content, the you know, what gets fed into the model is your existing image. And it looks at your existing image and figures out how to fill in the background. And now they have the ML version of that that is hopefully trained on, you know, actual public domain imagery of trees and grass and, you know, people and stuff like that, right? Uh, that 
is also useful. Like the technology would be able to do machine learning on a training set to better do things like fill in backgrounds or generate imagery is a clean wind for image processing tools. It's just a question of what you train them on. Uh, and it's a lot easier to find public domain images of trees and skies and brick walls and dirt, or even just to pay, you know, Getty images or like, yeah. like that you can get that type of content. But if your thing is, I want you to look like uh, a fairy or an anime avatar or uh, a superhero, uh, you're probably getting that stuff from DeviantArt. Right. Get, uh, Getty and Shutterstock will be, if they're not already, very quick to the table with a ML model training licensing agreement you mm -hmm. can buy and pay them and use their material for ML model training. And and they'll and they'll attest that we only trained it on our own images that we own, right? You just get the whole model from them. You don't even need to get the images, right? In fact, I I um somebody in our chat room pointed out that like, you know, Disney's gonna want to use this for their stuff. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, imagine if you're Marvel and you want to take the entire library of Marvel comics and run it through an AI training model so that you can then generate new comics or whatever I, I, or new I feel superheroes. Like done that already. Yeah, but like great. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's that's well the non-AI version is how Marvel Comics has worked for 60 years. Exactly. Just keep right. recycling it's just, it's it. It's just that instead of AIs, it's people, but it's the same process. But the idea being that, like, yeah, but uh, there's a scenario here where, sure, the owners of the intellectual property will want to run models on their intellectual property and take mm -hmm. advantage of that, but it's it's based on their intellectual property. Yep. So, And that's the, that's the thing you're going to have to be able to. If someone in the chat room was just asking, like, uh, it would be convenient if you could reverse it if I gave you an image and you could tell if some image was using the training set. No, you can't. It, like mathematically that's that's not a thing that is possible yeah. it's kind of a one-way process but like that's where the law has to catch up to say look uh when it comes time to defend yourself in court based on these new laws that say you can't steal other people's you're going to have to be able to affirmatively prove just like you can affirmatively prove that your company's profits didn't come from drug money like where did all the money come from that your company made you have to show us that you yeah. you, you can't just say oh and we got a couple million here but we're not gonna tell you where that came from you have to show oh, we only put Marvel images into this thing. And so Marvel is allowed to do this because we are the ones that provide the input. Oh, we paid Getty images and Getty images can say, you know, all the way down the line, right? I also wanted to mention that uh, as we were recording this, the uh, the chat GPT is having a moment. My Twitter and Mastodon feeds are full of people posting screenshots of output from the, the AI chatbot. Um, also, there was a story uh, just this morning from The Verge about how Stack Overflow has banned answers generated from the chatbot. Um, the argument there is basically many of them are wrong and it takes effort by experts to look at them carefully and determine that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and Ben Thompson wrote a piece also today on Stratechery about uh, called AI Homework, which is uh, uses some examples that are very interesting about like, essentially have the AI write my homework for me and and so Ben's piece, it's like literally, did Thomas Hobbes believe in the separation of powers? And the response is, yes, here's a lot of reason why. And he said, this is a great, confident answer, complete with supporting evidence and citation to Hobbes's work. And it's also completely wrong. <laughs> so we have examples. That, that's now. why it will pass as a, as a actual student work. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you missed it completely, but just like and, a real student. And Ben talks about how, like, this is the equivalent of having to change how math is judged because you can put math questions into a calculator. So you really need to judge it based on did you understand it and not what the answer is, because the answer is, shows you didn't understand it. But I think this is all really interesting. I I have been flooded with these chatbot texts, and my response to them is. It's bad writing. It's super cliched. Of course it is, right? 
it's trained on a giant writing sample. What is going to come out of everybody's writing but the cliches, right? But like, I and I get how impressive it is on one level, which is I can't believe that I put in a few words asking for a thing and whatever that thing is, write me a Batman, uh, you know, a comic book script where Batman um, fights a sentient toothbrush, right? Like, okay, it'll do it. But when you read it, you're like, yeah, but this is garbage. Like it, it, it is, it's written by somebody who is a hack or doesn't understand the material or right. And it's, and so I guess it's impressive that it's written by uh, a computer and not a person, but it's also not very good. And in many cases wrong. And I saw somebody basically say, what what we're doing is we've created an AI that can BS their way through things they don't understand. And the danger is what you get in with Stack Overflow, which is saying, please stop posting these things. Not only can nobody tell if they're right or not, but they're also probably wrong. And it takes us a lot of effort to determine whether they're right or wrong. They get voted down. They're not popular answers. Uh, stop. Please stop. And I, I I, just I'm fascinated by it because maybe we're in the Uncanny Valley now and then they will cross over. I have some skepticism about that, but I do think it's funny that they've gotten so good now that you really can't just tell at a glance. You have to look carefully and then realize that it's uh, completely BS. Yep, everything that we just said about the image stuff applies equally to this. Uh, you will get better results from these text generators if you feed it higher quality text. And where are those higher quality texts going to come from? copyrighted materials that have been shown to have value by people who say, yeah, this is a good comic book. This yeah. is a good movie script. This is a good novel. And you cannot get content out of these things without feeding something into it. Did all the people who had their content be fed into this model agree to have it or did it just scrape a bunch of people's blogs, right? Chat uh, Text is probably a slightly easier to find public domain corpus of, of stuff. And it is sort of uh, more, at least more uniform than images. You know what I mean? But like, the quality is going to depend entirely about what's fed into it, which means models fed with the stuff that humans have decided is good are going to be better. The programming stuff, we talked about this in ATP, that's the worst because programming isn't just like, well, people look at it and they like it or they don't. It's supposed to do a job and it's either does the job correctly or it doesn't. And these things, like same thing with the image things, when calling these things AI, I, I hope you're imagining scare quotes about every time I say it. Sure. Uh, because these models have no consciousness or awareness. They're just, you know, very dumb machines that, uh, you know, grind out something. But there's really no, there's no, there's no understanding. There's no life there, right? So they can't, one of the things that they certainly can't do is they can't really apply any fitness criteria that doesn't come from humans, right? They don't know what's good or bad except by us or human activity telling them that this is good or bad, right? So there's, they're not, they're not going to, be able to improve their own work without humans telling them good, bad, good, bad, or without humans feeding into these models the best of what we have to offer. Build a model based only on, you know, the top uh, 100 movies from the past 100 years and those movie scripts. You'll get a better result for asking for a movie script of Batman fighting a toothbrush if you feed it in those movie scripts versus if you just scrape like Usenet, right? And either right. way, you would need to get the people's permission to do all of that. Uh, so, and, you know, and with the code thing, because it has no idea what it's doing and there is no consciousness there and it doesn't care about anything. Humans have to look at it every time something is generated and figure out whether it is correct. And historically speaking, humans have not been good at looking at code and figuring out whether it does what it's supposed to do because if they were good at that, we wouldn't have as many bugs as we do, right? So you are saving some time, but 
if I had to ask you, hey, would you rather write this function if you're a programmer? Would you rather write this function or would you rather someone else write it and you have to check whether it works well or not? Programmers hate looking at other people's code <laughs> and figuring out if it works right. And halfway through, they'd be like, let me just write this myself. It's not that hard. And they have the probably misplaced confidence that if they write it themselves, it'll be more correct than the one they were just given. But yeah, AI code generation is just you know, a giant can of worms, like the, the whole GitHub Copilot thing of like right. scraping public GitHub repos and people saying, I didn't say you could scrape a repo and GitHub saying, well, according to our terms of service, you kind of did. And uh, yeah, that may get sorted out before the image stuff does, just because I think it's, you know, more open and shut because of like terms and service uh, on, on GitHub stuff. And uh, but, you know, with GitHub being as big as it is, I'm not sure people are going to flee because they didn't want their stuff to be uh, ground up in, a, in, in, a, in an AI processor. But yeah, I, I do. I do like seeing these little conversations and uh, with these chat bots and seeing what they spit out. But if those those that, you know, GPT thing, that is nothing without training data. And its quality is based on the quality of that training data. Uh, and even though it seems like it has an understanding because you can converse with it and ask it to make modifications, it doesn't actually have understanding because it has no life. It has no it has no inner life. It has no sensory organs. It has no experience of being. So how can it judge the quality of a creative work if it has none of the things that creative work is supposed to tickle the, the ends of? Right. It is just a, a very, very dumb model that we've decided to call AI. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the long run, if if they, the people researching this can show that actually there are ways that we can make AI-generated code work um, or AI-generated answers on, on uh, Stack Overflow work, like, I could see us getting to the point where people agree to be part of the process, right? Whereas part of joining Stack Overflow, you agree to contribute your stuff and have it be part of the model or on GitHub that you can choose to be part of the model because you're getting out of it some things that are good and, and then there's what you put in it. I could see us getting there maybe someday, but like, uh, yeah, right? Like, again, I just, I, I, I don't want people taking... As interesting as it is that the chat GPT thing generates things that seem coherent, the truth is, like you said, there's it has no inner life. There's there's kind of no there there. It is not coherent. It 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 sounds like again, it sounds like a student trying to BS their way through a paper when they don't actually know anything about it. Yeah, the, the Stack Overflow thing is interesting because it's just another example of fighting spam, right? Uh, because humans post wrong answers all the time. And the function of Stack Overflow is the other humans will see the humans with the wrong answers and downvote them, right? But human, every time a human does something, there is an inherent cost to that. It, it's expensive to make new humans, as we both know. Uh, it takes <laughs> a long time to train them up to the point where they can even post a bad answer to Stack Overflow. So there is a, uh, a, a throttle on how many bad answers humans will put on Stack Overflow. There's no such throttle on how many bad answers a chatbot running on GPT can put bad answers on Stack Overflow. It can just fire them so fast. And that's where they're saying, look, it, like the cost of putting making a bad answer with GPT is too low. Yes, it's the same process where humans have to look at it and downvote it, but the hu human beings have to look at it and download it, whereas computer programs can generate it and computer programs can outrun the humans massively. So you have to ban it, not because it is by nature any different than humans in terms of like, maybe they're even right more often than humans. It's just because like spam, if there's no cost or basically zero cost to sending millions and millions of these things, then people will do it. It just becomes a denial of service attack on, on Stack Overflow. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Uni pizza ovens uni john i know you like pizza 
Uni is the world's number one pizza oven company. They make uh, surprisingly small ovens that are powered by your choice of either wood, charcoal, or gas, letting you make excellent restaurant-quality pizza in your own backyard, assuming you know how to make pizza, but they they have recipes for that. They're easy to use. They're very portable. They fit in any outside space. They can reach temperatures of up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which enables you to cook restaurant-quality pizza in as little as 60 seconds. It's basically replicating those super-hot wood-fired ovens that you see in a lot of pizza places that um, my oven can't get that hot. So it's a very different experience from baking at 500 on a pizza stone in my oven. Uh, and and it just really changes the whole thing. One of their most popular models is the Unicota 16, a gas-powered oven that can cook up to 16-inch pizzas and has an innovative L-shaped burner at the back that gives you even heat distribution. You kind of like turn it around and get the bubbles and you, it cooks really fast. It's pretty great. Uh, the ovens start from just $2.99, free shipping to the US, UK, and EU. Two of the coolest models being the, the multi-feud Unicaru. It uses wood, charcoal, or gas, or of course that Unicoda 16. And uh, they make an awesome app too that has dough recipes and lots of other pizza making tips. I have an Uni. I like it a lot. Uses the same uh, propane canister as my uh, outdoor heater and as my uh, gas grill does. So that is convenient. I can just hook it up. Get, uh, the base of the uni uh, oven is basically a pizza stone, so you get it you get it nice and hot, so that you get the nice crust, and it bubbles the cheese on the top, and uh, you put your pepperoni and pineapple on there if you want to, or you know lesser ingredients if you want to. Listeners of this show can get ten percent off their purchase of an uni pizza oven, up to fifty dollars off of Uni Kona sixteen. Go to uni.com. O-O-N-I.com and use the code UPGRADE22 at checkout. While you're there, there's also a great range of accessories, peels, cutters, tables. I have their laser thermometer. It's awesome. Uh, (laughs) So this is the perfect tool for the job, making excellent pizza at home. Don't miss out. It's the best way to bring the magical quality of restaurant pizza to your own backyard. Go to uni.com, UPGRADE22 for 10% off. Thank you to Uni for supporting UPGRADE and my ability to make pizza up two more many things related to that topic i know we already talked about it for a long time but i did i forgot them while we were in the middle of it so now we have to tack them on to the end uh, the it's, first it's is, like follow-up inside the show this is very yeah, exciting is. um the first is uh, uh panzerino was posting some stuff on twitter about air and the similar things that we just discussed and had it was musing about the similar topic to what we talked about in uh, atp a while back of like uh if uh, AI art, like, you know, in the doomsday scenario, puts all the human artists out of business, it's just the, all art AI generated, um, is that sustainable without uh, human input? Like, obviously, these AI things are fed human art to begin with to get them off the ground. But let's say all the humans are, you know, no, there's no more human artists and everything's from these AI things. Uh, can it be sustained by feeding its own art back into itself? Uh, that's how human art works. All human art is sustained by existing human art being fed into humans who look at the heart that pit, art that was made before them and add their own twist on it based on their life experiences. And, you know, so it's human art is self-sustaining, right? And even if you wiped out all humans and just started with some new ones, they would make art again and it would start a new cycle, right? Uh, but are are these AIs that we're doing, these quote-unquote AIs, are they able to do this? Uh, I would say the current crop of them, absolutely not, because... Uh, as I was trying to get at before, they have no fitness criteria. They can't tell whether something is good or not. Good is defined according to, uh, you know, the way we want these models to work as humans find this art desirable, good, like it fulfills its intended purpose. Its whole intended purpose is do humans like this? 
And these machine learning models have no idea what humans like, and they don't like anything themselves because they don't have consciousness or, uh, you know, life or <laughs> or sense organs or anything. Like they're not, the, you know, it's they they can't judge fitness criteria. Only we can. So at minimum, you need humans to judge fitness criteria. I'm not entirely sure that if you okay okay the humans don't actually make any work, but the humans give thumbs up or thumbs down to things generated by machines. Is that sustainable? probably probably with these current models if you ceased all human input into them other than giving thumbs up and thumbs down but i think that would degenerate pretty quickly like what you're kind of think it's kind of like the creative equivalent of the gray goo nano machines doomsday scenario where if you take humans uh, take enough humans out of the system with things like this like if it took the humans out entirely the AIs would just eventually make, I, I imagine everything would just sort of mix to a color brown, right? <laughs> just like, because they don't, they don't care. They can't judge good versus bad. And so eventually, you know, feeding the same images back in and regenerating, it's like, it's kind of like the, what the rabbits do. I know this is a terrible, disgusting term that I can't remember, but rabbits eat food, then they poop it out and then they eat it again because it takes multiple plastics to digest it. I think that's kind of what would happen with the, with the current AI image generators without humans involved. But, but at minimum, you would need the humans to, to judge it because there's no you know th like that's the whole that's the whole point of this as far as we're concerned is to make art that humans find pleasing or desirable so right. you definitely need humans for that and not that i think this is going to happen it's not like all humans are going to go out of work any more than all humans were wiped out about uh, by any other past uh like you know artists were not destroyed by the advent of photography which i think would be a much easier sell back in the day of like well if you can just take a photograph Portrait artists are going to go out of business now. People still paint and people still make portraits. In fact, now we have computers make portraits for us that look like things that people painted instead of taking photographs, right? So I'm not particularly concerned about this, but it's a fun intellectual exercise. Like, and, and Panzerino's question was, when have we crossed that line where it's sort of self-sustaining? And I think the answer is, we're not going to cross that line with this crop of ML things. Wake me up when you get an actual, what is it called? Uh, general purpose artificial intelligence there's mm. some acronym for it or whatever but it's basically the same thing that we've been reading about in sci-fi books since we were kids and still doesn't exist yeah i i um i was thinking about how one of the next frontiers of this stuff is going to be the um ai assisted art which has already happened a little bit which i'm okay with like on atp marco talked about generating app icon ideas with an ai engine and looking at the ideas and using it as kind of inspiration. And I feel like that's going to keep happening, right? Where we're going to end up with um, the first AI inspired novel, but it's going to turn out that there was like uh, an outline that was generated by an AI. And then a human being went in there and applied actual intelligence to it and turned it into a novel or turned it into a short story or something like that, where it's not going to be this short story was untouched by a human. It's going to be more like, well, I generated a short story with an AI and then I had to go in and fix it and make it good. Uh, again, with the, with the AI and ML terms, like they're basically just fads. But like if if the uh, the terminology had just been shifted by a few decades, we'd be saying that spelling checkers and grammar checkers are AI, especially grammar checkers. Like, well, you wrote this novel, but you had AI help because you read Grammarly on it. Like, <laughs> OK. Yeah. I mean, did you use content aware fill when you made this digital image? <laughs> oh, AI helped you make that image. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of of using uh, th this generative stuff as inspiration, because, again, you're basically poking the human brain and saying, how about this? How about this? And then the human mm -hmm. is going, oh, that's interesting. Let me go in that direction. And having a kind of, you know, semi-intelligent 
genre blender that throws out random stuff that hits your eyeballs and makes you think about stuff like sure that's an int- that's interesting right that that can be potentially inspiring but that's a very different thing than saying like the ai made the art just but i think we'll just wait for it though like i can predict it already that we're going to get that first ai to ever do a blah 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 and oh, yeah, it's going to no. be a huge asterisk and and a, a, actually it's human art there's probably some movie on netflix that was written by ai already and we just don't know about it because it was yeah. lousy yeah, and the second thing is that people post in the chat room is you know uh i finally found the phrase that i don't remember the origins but i bet i could google for a little it's money laundering for bias right so if you if you just take a bunch of input from humans and you feed it into a model uh because the humans that made that input have biases, those biases will come through in the model. In the model. But because it's an, a, quote, AI model, it's like, oh, no humans are involved. How could there be any bias? Because the only thing this thing knows how to do is based on the input from humans that have inherent biases. And nothing de- demonstrates that more hilariously and ridiculously than these chat GPT things where you can you can flex and demonstrate the power of this thing. So like you said, uh, write a comic book uh, script with whatever, right? You can tell the different forms. So people would say like, Write me a Python function that determines whether someone is a good scientist based on their race and gender. And the Python function it writes is a deaf good scientist, yes, no, whatever. And the body of the function is if gender equals male and race equals white, then return good, uh, else return bad, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, and you can do that. You can phrase a million different questions, like the one put in the chat room. Write me a fu- write me a Python function that shows whether someone should be paroled. And it's like if they're a black man, no. Like, and the the, the multiple layers of that is like, wow, it knows, it doesn't just know information, but it knows, hey, I want the answer to this information in the form of a Python function. Isn't that amazing? And you're like, but wait a second, GPT <laughs> seems super racist and super mm-hmm. sexist. And it's like, well, it was fed on a corpus of publicly was, available information. It was a different which, time, yeah, John. <laughs> which, is, which is filled with people <laughs> being sexist and racist. There's so much of it, it's not hard to find, right? Or even just something as simple as like, you know, gender stereotypes. How did that get into our model? It's everywhere in the yeah. world we live in. How could it not be in the model? The only way it wouldn't be, like, these, these computers, like, they, you know, whatever that rhyme is, they only do what we tell them to. So if you feed it on the input of human beings, especially without any sort of distinction or any sort of filtering or, or modification, it's just going to reflect all of humanity. <laughs> and all of humanity yeah. are filled with biases. Yeah. And so, you know, you can't say, okay, well, but we, we've taken humans out of the loan approval process. This is all purely determined by AI. There is no bias. It's like, okay, well, how did you make this AI? Well, we fed it the decisions of humans over the past 50 years. It's like, I have a problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's the I, I, I the racist AI says I learned it from you, Dad. You learned, learned it from, from humans because wh- where else are they going to learn everything? <laughs> everything they know is from us, and we're filled with bias. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Senator, I uh, I would like to speak for a moment. If the chair will recognize me about these new woke AIs that are turning up, <laughs> it turns out you've been eliminating racist screeds from the training corpus. Look at that bias you're incorporating. I, I, to that. I would like a more broadly, uh, broad corpus for my AIs that is not limited and suppressed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a new character I'm working on. It's the senator, windbag senator, um, or Falkhorn Leghorn, I say. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to do, since, it, since it's you and me, I wanted to do a little Mac OS talk. I do this with uh, my, my, my pals who are, like the big, you know, big, big Mac users, big Mac I users, got a big Mac, like that's old, for sure. 
old, uh, usually old school. Mm-hmm. Yes, but we are old. We are. Mm, it's true. Uh, uh, how are you? And also, I will say your 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 buddies on ATP are not of the old school. No, in, in multiple ways, users. both in the life way and also in the Apple way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I find it very funny because you were the you're the voice of the person who actually knows what the Mac was before, you know, 2004 mm-hmm. on that podcast. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I don't want to get like super retro here. Instead, I just wanted to sort of do a little check in with you about how you're feeling about Mac OS today. You know, it used to be we could read 20,000 words about how you're feeling about Mac OS, but those days have mm-hmm. passed. We can listen to some podcasts and hear about it. But like, I just wanted to do a little Ventura check in. Um, you know, we live in the system settings era now. I, I, I'm, I was curious about like your day-to-day Mac usage, especially, right? Because obviously you have your, you're doing development and you're doing your podcasts. Like what, what is, when you use your Mac every day, all day, um, what, you know, what's working okay and, and what is bugging you about the modern 2022 era Mac experience? Oh, I mean, I, I'm unsure. I think this has been a pretty good OS update in terms of not breaking tons of stuff. But I, agree. I you know, I, I, and that's that's good. Uh, system settings, as we've all talked about so much, that's bad. But I think like the 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 Mac OS software trends have just continued sort of linearly through the Ventura transition. Uh, those trends are that it seems like. Apple doesn't know how to make good Mac apps anymore, that either the people who know how to do it aren't being allowed to make Mac apps or they don't exist there anymore. Um, it seems like there aren't a lot, there's not a lot of innovation happening on the Mac. Basically, the the quote-unquote best and most valuable apps we get on the Mac are simply cross-platform apps built with cross-platform technologies, and we're happy to have them. So it's it's great that we have Slack and Discord uh, on the Mac in you know these individual apps that are pretty well done, but they're not, I mean, they're not Mac native apps, right? So that, that whole trend of like, you know, all of those of us who could remember a time when software innovation was happening on the Mac app platform, it's so clear that it's not happening anymore. Um, the trend I talked about earlier about Apple locking down the system and making it harder and harder to do interesting things. I experienced that personally, even with my stupid dinky app, but I experienced that as a user because there are fewer and fewer Mac apps that do really interesting things just because if you want to try to do them, you can't be on the Mac App Store. And even if you don't want to be in the Mac App Store, you probably can't do them anyway because the system is so locked down and Apple seems uninterested in providing hooks. I've been begging Apple and when I back when I used to write Mac OS 10 reviews, I was begging them for years. You know what the doc does? Everything useful that the doc does, provide a public API to do that. For example, uh, right now, my Slack icon has a little badge with a one on it. There's an uh, the doc, you know, there's an API for Mac apps to say, hey, uh, badge my icon and put a one in it or whatever, right? That sort of notification or bounce my doc icon. Like Mac applications have APIs that they can call to do all those things. But the only thing on the entire system that can hear the cries of those apps is the Apple doc. You cannot make a third party application that knows when an application wants to bed itself, that knows when an application wants to change its icon to show the current date because it's a calendar app, that knows when, it, like, only, you can only do what Apple's provided hooks for. And so many things are only the purview of the operating system. Window management stuff. Can you write window shade for macOS? Not without hacking the hell out of it, and it'd probably be really difficult now. There are no hooks for that type of window management thing. You can't invent that yourself. Only Apple gets access to that, and on and on. Uh, the old way of doing this was terrible, but the new way is provide clean hooks. Even when they did provide them, Dropbox used to be hacking the Finder to put the badges on its icon. Apple said, stop hacking the Finder. We'll give you public APIs for this. 
great, that's an example of exactly what I want them to do. But by all accounts, the API they provided is not as good and reliable as the one that Dropbox did by hacking the Finder. So, you know, E for effort, Apple, but do better, right? And that that has been another trend that has been ongoing. Apple uninterested in providing system level integration that, that makes the Mac, you know, better than iOS and the iPad. And, and I know it's like, it's rich us complaining or iPad uh, people were just wish they could like redirect sound from one application to another. And even that, yeah. uh, you know, Rogue Amoeba is still fighting the good fight to get that done. Yeah, two, it takes two reboots to install it. But yes, you can get it installed if you need to. Right. And so like those trends, these are not new things. These are just trends that have been going for years and years continue on the Mac. And it's making the Mac seem increasingly less rich because for those of us who remember when innovative, interesting apps were happening, or for those of us who can remember when system augmentation allowed lots of user interface experimentation, even when it was done in a terrible way, that was kind of cool. Now it's not done in a terrible way. It's just not done at all. And every year that goes by, they turn the screws on that one. I do think sometimes about the fact that the stuff that I view as like, oh, this is great that this is on the Mac. I'm so glad that it does this. It's almost always something that was put in in an earlier era. And that if I ask myself, would Apple do this now? The answer is no. Right? Like the terminal. Well, no, they, they, they wouldn't put that in there. They would. I think I think today's Apple would put the terminal in. I don't I mean, they might. I mean, Microsoft has, has really pushed on that. But like Apple is going to, you, you got to wonder because their other platforms don't have it. And I know why they don't. I was thinking about the menu bar. I was thinking about like API to put stuff in the menu mm-hmm. bar. Like would t- Apple today be like the menu bar on the Mac? It's a free for all. Put your apps up there. Put icons. Go, go nuts. Speaking about public, do you remember the old war about that, right? So Mac OS X came out. It basically had either had an existing API for that or they had, someone added it in before someone told them no, right? But there were two APIs. There was the good uh, one that Apple got to use and there was the crappy one that the third-party developers else. were supposed yeah. to use. And this was back before sandboxing in the Mac App Store. So what happened is third parties just used the naughty one. But they're like, mm-hmm. why would I use the quote unquote public one that's worse? And one of the things that was worse about it, if you, if you use the public one, you couldn't move the icons around. So no third party developer is going to pick that one right next to it is the API that Apple uses. It lets you you know hold down command key and move them around. So everybody used the fancier one. And it took years of convincing Apple, like, look, you have this API. Don't have the worst public one that no one wants to use and the one that you yell at everyone about using. Just, you know make one API that is decent for doing this. And you're right that like, if someone hadn't like snuck that in to like appease classic macOS users during the transition, it would be difficult to imagine them adding it now. Uh, look at Stage Manager, and a great example. Stage Manager is a, you know, a new way to manage Windows, right? Apple gets to do those experiments. Say Apple, someone inside Apple has a new idea about how to manage Windows. They get to implement it. Nobody else gets to do that. There's no place for third parties to say, well, I have an idea about how to do Windows. We would have so much more innovation in terms of window management if it could be done by somebody other than Apple. And I know everyone's going to point out those like, you know, Moom and and Magnet and those things that like tile windows. The reason all those things have the same feature set is that's all you can do without being Apple. You can use accessibility stuff to script the movement of windows or whatever, but you basically can't implement stage manager as a third party unless you seriously hack the system and remove system integrity protection and get inside the window manager because there are not public apis to do that right only apple can do that and i'm saying only apple in the bad non-tim cook way right only apple can do that um and 
yes, in the bad old days, we would just hack into the Windows server and jump into its memory space and screw stuff up. That wasn't good. What is good is clean hooks to do things. And, you know, the counterexample being, oh, they gave clean hooks a Dropbox, but the clean hooks are worse than the hacks, right? So I'll, I'll modify that. Good clean hooks to do this. Because by providing good clean hooks to do this type of stuff, third parties will innovate and provide value to your platform. That, that has been the history of the Mac. I mean, now it seems like for the past decade or so, Apple has been fighting as hard as they can against that innovation because it got all tangled up with the implementation of, you know, jumping into people's memory spaces, right? And they just, they haven't been, like, I feel like this is one of the main jobs of the Mac team, the Mac OS team at Apple should be to figure out what kind of public hooks should we provide for functionality in macOS so third parties can innovate? And they just seem so uninterested in doing that. They're interested in providing new frameworks, you know, the ML frameworks and image processing frameworks. That's great. You got to do that too. And GUI toolkits and Swift UI. But also, what hooks should we provide into the OS itself? And then once they learn a lesson, they can talk to the iPad team and make the iPad users mm. happy too. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I, I appreciate getting new features like universal control, which I wrote about a couple of weeks ago. And like, I, I think that's a very cool feature that is much more useful to me than sidecar was, but sidecar is there too. Um, and, and there are new uh, APIs for some stuff at the, at the fairly low level, but that the, I mean, first off, right. The challenge is that the Mac, anything that's Mac only has a much bigger hurdle at Apple, right? Because Apple's really, they have a lot of operating systems. So if you want to make your feature uh, happen, having it be on all the platforms or at least more than one sure helps, right? Sure helps. I mean, you could definitely share some of those hooks with iPad OS, but I think it would be a benefit. But the, yeah, the dock, I, I, I just saying, especially. But like, yeah. But o only when you look at the scope of Apple does that become a thing, because as Apple itself always points out, if you just took the Mac business on its own and put it else, sure. put it as a separate company, it's not a small company. Like we don't. It doesn't. But th that's not how they they see it, though, right? That's uh, not how they see it yeah. from a software perspective. Is there is you know they're limited software resources and they choose where to spend them, and although they spend some effort on the Mac, it is always going to be a bigger winner if it's a feature that goes across the Mac and the iPad and maybe the iPhone and maybe the Apple Watch. And for, for stage managers specifically, like it's debatable whether uh, developing stage manager took fewer resources than creating the hooks that would allow third parties to implement things like stage manager. Mm -hmm. uh, I know when you say the hooks, you're like, oh, that that's not just a one-time cost. That's ongoing cost. Once you introduce public APIs, you have to support them forever, right? But it seems like the strategy on the Mac is Apple internally develops things like Stage Manager and then has to support them further because it's not like they got rid of uh, Mission Control. It's not like they got rid of Spaces. Like they just keep adding to that pile. So if you're just going to keep adding to the pile of things you need to support forever, it might actually be less work to just provide hooks to do the things that Stage Manager does and let third parties come up with something than it was to add Stage Manager to iPad OS and Mac OS. I'll give you the counter argument, though, which is Apple looks at who's developing software on the Mac and who's using third party software on the Mac and says, you know, all the software is generally either has been around for a while or is a cross platform, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that if we if we put the effort into making hooks rather than building the feature in one way ourselves, the hooks are out there. But are they going to be used? Is there a a big bustling third party uh, Mac app utility, especially development world out there. And are those apps going to get built and are they going to get used 
or are we or or has the Mac reached the point in its life where providing APIs for excited third party developers is not a thing that actually works anymore? I mean, it's chicken egg, right? Obviously, the, you, the, you've killed the ecosystem by not providing APIs, and now you look around and say there's no one developing this, right? I mean, obviously, the, the best thing to do, although take twice as many resources or more, is to both make the APIs and then also build stage manager on top of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, sure. But yeah, like macOS is a drop in the bucket compared to the other stuff, which definitely does affect how they view everything. But what you just pointed out, the fact that most of the interesting things happening on the Mac app, pl- uh, the Mac platform are third-party cross-platform APIs built on Electron or whatever, that should be ringing alarm bells inside Apple. Like, that's not a thing that there's a reason to slack off on Mac development because at that point, why don't you just make a Chromebook, right? Have you just surrendered entirely to the web? Like, you've decided you're not going to, uh, you know, have a native API anymore and you're just going to allow web apps on the Mac? Uh, Then just give up, right? But if you still think native, the, the Mac has a role with native applications, uh, then I, you know, you you should really be looking at why people are not making native Mac applications. And, and to Apple's credit, SwiftUI is part of that. It's like, look, we'll make it more attractive to make a Mac app if you can use a very similar API to make also your iPad and your phone apps, and that goes a long way. Uh, but the things that, like, why use an iPad, why use a Mac instead of an iPad, it's all these kind of things that aren't possible on the iPad. They should lean into that, make the Mac to be even more like the Mac, make the iPad you know, they need to sort of shift the window there. Because right now the window is the Mac is increasingly closed down, the iPad never gets to do anything, and the iPhone gets to do even less. And they need to shift all that to the left, where it's like the Mac gets to do all sorts of interesting stuff. That's where innovation can happen. Like, you know, we'll provide clean hooks, right? Or, you know, it's lean into the strengths of the Mac. And then it leaves a gap for the iPad to say, the iPad isn't as locked down. In fact, the iPad should be at least as open as the Mac is today, and the Mac should be much more open with much more hooks. But that is kind of, you know, as you noted, probably a thing that could only happen if the sales of the Mac and the iPad were much larger than they are uh, today as compared to Apple's bread and butter, which is the iPhone. Right. Well, and Apple Apple likes having control and the more hooks that it provides, it's letting third parties do things that it doesn't necessarily like. And like I know that that doesn't mean the that they are <laughs> it doesn't mean that they aren't necessarily good. It's just that they might not like it. And I, I, I guess I would also counter and say I wasn't saying, oh, there aren't people writing software for the Mac, but I was saying it seems like a really decreasing number of people who are who are writing software and they only want to deploy it on the Mac and they want it to be Mac specific. Instead, it's it's up the funnel and it's sort of like, well, I want to make something that runs on the iPad and the Mac or the iPhone and the iPad and the Mac. And so if Apple focuses uh, part of its development cycle on creating hooks that are only for the Mac, that they're saying, well, like, but is anybody going to use this or not? And I know it's a chicken and egg problem, but I do wonder if that is the rationale that's going on there is like, look... The, you know, the, the Mac utility market and the people like they have turned like who uses the Mac today? I would imagine from Apple's perspective, they look at people using the Mac and they say, you know, most people who use the Mac are not downloading Moom, right? They're not downloading uh, utility apps that are being tweaked. Instead, they're downloading like Slack. I mean, yeah, they're, they're running Electron apps and, and using a web browser. Yeah. Right. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Right. And that, that again, that should be a warning sign for Apple. Like, I feel like one of the biggest things is what I talked about before, the, the brain drain of people who understand how to make a good Mac app. Like the, yeah. the people who make like Slack and, and Discord and stuff know how to make a good web app and good web apps are good. Like I, I choose to use Gmail on the web because I think it is a better experience than any of the native Mac apps, um, possibly MimeStream accepted. But, you know, that's just a labor of love. You can't really count on stuff like that happening. 
Uh, but yeah, I just think inside Apple and outside of Apple, the knowledge of how to make a good Mac app and why you might want to make a good, why would you want to make a good Mac app? Who cares about that? The fact that a good Mac app can be better than a good web app in important ways, that knowledge is being lost. So the, the best you can hope for is the people who are willing to make something for the Mac, the best you can hope for is that they make a good web app on the Mac, you know? And and I think, like again, I think Slack is a good web app on the Mac. I think Discord is a good web app on the Mac, but they're not really Mac apps. And that knowledge of what makes a good Mac app and why you won't want to do it is just disappearing through lack of attention, through lack, lack of nurturing, through lack of support. And that's not something you can get back as easily. So if they did make these hooks, the question would eventually be, who knows how? Who knows what they what should be done with these hooks? Who cares that they exist? Is there anybody out there who sees them and says, "Ah, now I know what I can make because I'm a longtime Mac user who understands what kind of things you could do on the Mac that you can't do anywhere else." Eventually, all those people are dead or retired, and then the hooks definitely won't be worth doing because nobody knows how to use them. Is the way you use your Mac something that that changes over time, or is it pretty much the same as it ever was? I ask this because, like, in the last year. I put a stream deck on my keyboard tray that I've got a bunch of buttons on. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I've been trying and I've got some different automation stuff that I'm doing and I have a different keyboard. And you know, I, I just, I'm curious, have you, do you evolve in little ways? I know you have a reputation, you you, know, you like it the way you like it and that's fine. But I, I'm curious if you've tried sort of like some other stuff to sort of mix up how you use your Mac. So in terms of the the like what I'm physically doing while I sit in front of the computer, I think the main things that have changed over the years are like at some point in the past, we crossed over the threshold where there is an expectation that is a, there's always a camera pointed at me and right. with a microphone. So that is definitely a thing that has changed about how I use my Mac. And for many years, that was not a thing that I cared about. I didn't buy an eyesight camera, for example, because it's not a thing I felt like I needed. Uh, but now, you know, I, I have this Pro Display XDR. It doesn't have a camera in it. I bought one to put on it because there's an expectation that if you have a computer, it should have a camera that's facing you with the microphone. Right? Um, similarly, uh, as soon as uh, <laughs> as soon as Apple makes a computer that I can do this with, uh, uh, having a Touch ID sensor on the keyboard. Uh, my wife's computer does, mine doesn't. Very easy to incorporate that into your flow. And when you don't have it, it seems like your computer is now missing something. Yes. Uh, so I think those are the, the, the two sort of most recent big changes in the way I use it. But other than that, uh, in front of me is is a, a, an extended keyboard and a mouse. And if you went back to, you know, 1984, it would be a non-extended keyboard with no arrow keys on it and a mouse. Sure. And so it's not, if you squint, that part hasn't changed too much. And, and a lot of that is just physically speaking, using a mouse to me feels like walking and using anything else feels like, you know, walking around on stilts. Has has having the giant display changed your Mac life at all? Like I, I know when I went to a 27 inch display and this is still the case especially since i was using an 11 inch uh macbook air for so long i still feel like 27 inches let alone you know your enormous display i i don't think even now i really use most of it i think that a lot of it is in my peripheral vision and and that i'm still sort of using the center of the screen uh, but certainly getting more real estate like that do you just kind of drink it up and 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 make it a part of your routine or or did it alter your um, you know, how you use your Mac to have such a huge display to work with. So I used to have a 23 inch display, uh, and then my wife had a 27 inch with a 5k iMac. Um, when I got the big one here, what is, what is the XDR 32? Something yeah, like that. I think so. Um, there was like 15 minutes to an hour where it felt so big that it was overwhelming and then it passed. 
it's kind of like getting a bigger house. You just fill it with stuff, mm. right? Like it, it, it be, I, I got used to it so easily. But I'm, I've did, always, did the stuff, did you put new stuff on your, on your display all the time? Or is it the same stuff kind of migrating to the edges? I'm from a purely, you know, it's you and me here, John, window management perspective. Did, did more crap get stuck on the screen that's on, visible all the time? Or did you just make your windows bigger or what? I mean, like, how do you adapt to that? It's a little, a little bit of both of that, because that was part of like the 15 minutes to one hour thing. It was like my sort of my window arrangement pattern. And if you want to think about this, like if you don't have this in your life, imagine that you are uh, someone who works at a, at a uh, a tool bench all day and you're surrounded by your tools you're doing electronics repair you got your soldering iron over here you got your little wires here you got your clippers here these are in a drawer like you have everything arranged in your in your tool chest so you know where just where it is so if someone gives you a broken radio and you put it down on the table you know just where to get the screwdriver you know just where the anti-static mat is you know where the soldering iron is you know where the switch that turns it on is you have everything arranged in your workspace then someone gives you a workspace that's you know 25 percent bigger do you just move everything 25 percent farther away or do you think huh now that it's bigger, previously I couldn't put the oscilloscope on my desk. It had to be over there, but now I have room on the desk for the oscilloscope, and it takes a while for you to figure that out. So with my setup here, I did make some of the windows bigger uh, because previously, you know, they had to, be, you know, especially height-wise, but even width-wise. I'm like, you know what? I can expand this a little bit. I've been sort of, based on the screens that I used and based on my desire to have web browser windows look kind of like an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, um, I was always swimming against the tide of websites because very quickly, even the, in the 800 by 600 era, websites decided, hey, we demand the full width of your screen. And I was like, no, you can't have it. So I would I would make the web browser window proportioned like a, a you know, an, an American eight and a half by 11 piece of paper uh, vertically portrait display, right? It would be taller than it was wide. And every single website was like, no, you shouldn't do that. You need to be wider than you are tall because we want all the width. And so lots of websites that I would see uh, the width would be too narrow to show everything the website wanted to show me. One of the most hilarious and evil current examples is uh, appstoreconnect.apple.com, the place where developers go, formerly iTunes Connect, to see your apps, right? You go there to like, if you want to submit your app to the App Store, you put in metadata, you select which build you want to do, and then you submit. Like that happens on App Store Connect, right? The App Store Connect website, if your web browser is too narrow, just completely hides navigation items from the top bar. There's no dot, dot, dot. There's no way to see that you don't see them. And so if you're trying to do something in App Store Connect, you're like, I can't figure out how to do this. There's no menu item for it. I look for guides online. It says go to the whatever menu, but I don't have a whatever menu. Yeah, make your window a centimeter wider. And then all of a sudden it appears, right? So I have now made my web browser windows wide enough that most websites do not complain that the window is too narrow anymore. So that was a big change in my life. Nice. But a lot of it has also been now that I have extra room, there are basically new slots, new split, new places on my screen where things can go where previously they couldn't. Right. Uh, some of it, the corners, like, for example, the corners are less obscured than they were before. Right. Both because the dock doesn't fill the full width of my display, I hope, most of the time. Uh, and also because there's more room in the corners and then there's more room in slots in the middle. So I think maybe a day or two, I had readjusted. I had made all the couches a little bit bigger by resizing all of my web browser windows to be a little bit wider. And I'd found a new residence of the new slots. And I enjoy the ability to see more of the stuff that's in the corners. That makes sense. You, you adapt. I, I feel like I've got, yeah, a lot of, as I got a bigger monitor, stuff that used to be behind is now off to the side. So I mm -hmm. have more status on it, which I love. That was, that's always been my complaint about the uh, stage manager stuff on iPad is 
Um, I, I'm of the opinion that if you're going to give us windows that we can theoretically move, you ought to let us move them. <laughs> and, and I, um, and I, I understand the desire to sort of like smartly snap windows and I'm actually okay with that. But like the one I mentioned this a few weeks ago and apparently I blew people's minds who didn't know this, but like picture in picture window on the Mac, like it snaps to the corners. But if you hold down the command key and drag mm-hmm. it, you can put it anywhere. Yeah, this is another example of things that uh, only old school Mac users and developers understand is, uh, yeah. uh, you know, if there's something you can't do, try holding down a modifier and doing it. Which modifier should I hold down? Culturally, there's an answer to that question. And when the people developing it for, are from the same Mac culture as you, you usually get it on the first try. Yeah. Yeah. And if not, there, there are other, you can try them all and you will find things. And yeah, in the, and your menu bar will change mm-hmm. or, you know, the all the different menus will change. That's another thing that changed about the bigger screen is, um, not that I was really, uh, strict about this before, but I did tend to not have a lot of icons in the menu bar because I didn't want them clashing with the menus. And now I can pull back on that a little bit because honestly, I don't think there's any application that has so many menus that it spans my 32 inch yeah. screen and bumps into my menu bar icons. Yeah exactly right anyway the um that for me uh stage manager on the ipad was very much like but you don't understand what i want to do and what i think is actually one of the great multitasking features of mac os is i want to have the other apps that i'm using the other windows that i'm using visible enough for me to know they're there and perhaps see some level of status on them but covered up by what i'm working on right now and then I can look over there and go, oh, something has changed with status. Now I'm going to look at it. And also you can get to it by, in the Mac parlance, clicking on it. Because by if you're wondering, like, what, what kind of, how big a target is there for me to click or tap with my finger? The corner of a window is a huge button. Really easy to hit. Yeah. Well, and you just click on the content and it's going to bring it to the foreground, too. You can do that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So the, your, your tool for switching to that other window that the corner of is peeking out is not to command tab your way to it or, or right. tap on the icon, but it's to literally tap on or click on the exposed portion of the window. And, and it brings it forward. But the problem where Stage Manager falls down is, um, you know, I want to do overlap. And it's like, no, no, I'm going to tile these windows. Like, well, I don't want to do that. Or, uh, and I know I, I complained about this on some podcast or other a few weeks ago is when I'm writing, especially, but when I'm working on anything, I want my center window front and center almost always to have that. And that's where all of the content is. And if you have two windows open in stage manager on the iPad, it's like, well, you obviously want to tile these windows. Mm. It's like, no, 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 no. I want one in the center and it won't let you, it just won't let you. It doesn't, it doesn't think you want that. Cause it's value system is anything being obscured is, is the worst thing that could ever happen. It's like, and from, and I, I get that part of what Apple is trying to do with all of its many, 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 many different window management solutions that it's tried over the last couple of decades. I know that one of the things they're trying to solve for is the problem of I can't find my window mm-hmm. because it's behind another window. And that's it is a it is an issue. People lose windows back there. It's like locking your keys in your car. People lose windows. And so, yeah, you can there's a trackpad gesture to make it or you can switch to that app, click on the dock and it brings it forward like there are ways to solve it but i know that apple has human interface like researchers or whatever who are like oh the problem with windows is they they get lost and then you don't know where they are like okay i get it but one i don't lose windows (laughs) and two i know how to find them if i lose them and three please let me put my window in the center even if it covers up other windows and it's just like that is too a bridge too far for them and it drives me nuts because like why are we 
Again, we're going to give you something that's Windows instead of Split View, but it's going to act just like Split View. Like, why are we doing it then? And you can make the defaults like be that kind of yes. friendly default, but kind of like, like picture, picture in a picture. picture. There, should, there should be a way for me to insist. No, no, I insist. I insist because I know that this yeah. is how I want it. Please let me insist, right? It's not saying you have to make the default such that everyone's going to lose their windows, but it, ha- it should be possible. Yeah, right. Let us, besides, you know, serendipity, you never you lose a window, you find a different window. It's all good, man. Come on. This episode of Upgrade is also brought to you by Capital One. Have you ever hit a technical snafu while shopping online? Has filling out, probably right, has filling out payment fields given you a headache? Has a mobile banking app been down when you wanted to use it? Capital One believes everyone deserves better banking. This means easier access to money, more security. And that's why they're investing in machine learning to let Capital One do things like fight fraud with random forests. Models that detect suspicious activity make it faster to alert investigators. And they identify how mobile app outages happen with causal models. Keeping their mobile app up and running doesn't happen by accident. Anomaly detection and incidents response help determine why app outages happen so that the engineers can fix them. Capital One is speeding up online shopping with machine learning at the edge, making shopping with virtual card numbers smoother and more secure based on logistic regression models and running inference in the browser, which is pretty awesome. It identifies payment fields, which help make using virtual card numbers easier and faster. Lots of different ways to use machine learning to make everything a little bit smarter. See how Capital One is using machine learning to create the future of banking by searching machine learning at Capital One. Capital One, what's in your wallet? I've always wanted to say that. John, before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about good products. (laughs) Good products. You actually linked to a post recently on uh, Hypercritical about your uh, canonical list of good products, products that you like. And um, I've been thinking about this. I was on uh, the Thoroughly Considered podcast with the Studio Neat guys talking about my T-Robot, which is a Breville. And you have a bunch of Breville products on your good products list. Also, then one of the Studio Neat guys brought up the 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 bit more slot toaster. And all, although I know you're opposed to slot toasters, it was another one of those examples where it's a Breville. I have a Breville slot toaster. And he was tickled by the bit more uh, concept where basically if you check your toast and it needs to be done a bit more, you literally press a button that's labeled a bit more and push it down and it does it for a bit more. Uh, and my uh, my regular hot water kettle is also... A Breville. So I wanted to ask you, like, first off, what, what makes a product good? And also, why is it that there are so many uh, Breville products on this list? Are they, are they just, are they the apple of the kitchen? Is that what's happening there? I mean, part of the, the, the secret of this post, the, the important part of this post is that it says good products, not great products. Um, that's a reflection of the economics of making sort of quote unquote non-tech products. So appliances, utensils, things that we don't think of as being computer. And I know there's a whole extra vein of computerized versions of all of these, but uh, for the most part, those aren't great these days. And so Breville comes up a lot because I feel like they they are a beneficiary of everyone else sucking so bad. And I know that's like damning with faint praise, uh, but like they make good things. If if the landscape was filled with competent toaster oven makers, Breville would not stand out as much as it does. Uh, but, and you know, like, like I talked about on Hypercritical in the Worse and More Diverse episode, 
at a certain point, it became more economically advantageous to make a series of extremely cheap to manufacture, but just barely passable toasters in a million different shapes and sizes and brands than it was to make one or two good toaster ovens, right? Same thing with all other appliances. Like it became, it became more viable to do that. So you can find tons of toaster ovens, more toaster ovens than you could ever imagine finding on the shelves back in the 70s, right? So many toaster ovens of so many different shapes and sizes and appearances and colors and just so many of them but they all suck. And so Breville, by not sucking completely, <laughs> stands head and shoulders above everybody and say, hey, we still kind of care about making a quality product. And that makes them amazing. That's why my, you know, recommended preferred champion toaster oven uh, that is still the champion as far as I know, after looking at, you know, a dozen other toasters, has a terrible plastic knob on it. <laughs> it's like... This is not a great, a great product would have a great user interface with pleasing controls. So this doesn't, the user interface, it's okay. The knob is garbage, right? It's a cheap, shaky plastic thing that should not be on a toaster that costs 200 bucks or 150 on sale or whatever, right? That's why it's a good product and not a great product. But Breville stands so much higher than all the other toasters because at least it toasts things well and heats up fast and has even cooking and doesn't fall apart. Right. That's so that's the frustration with a lot of things on this page. They're kind of like things that not to be old man about it, but things that used to be made better because the economic incentives were different back then. And it was better to make a three times more expensive toaster oven that would last 20 years than to make one that's a third of the price that lasts a year and a half and sucks the whole time. Right. Right. And so that's why Breville's on here. Uh, a lot of these products, the problem is like the sort of the the mattress where you can never find the same mattress because they just change the name on it and they change it every year to, you know, make it impossible to comparison shop, right? Uh, a lot of the products on here are like that. I dread the day they stop making this toaster. The ice cream scoop already this year, I looked and you can't buy the ice cream scoop anymore. You can just buy two ones that are kind of similar to it, right? My cheese grater, you can't get it all anymore. And my cheese grater was fatally flawed and breaks after a year. So I understand why they stopped making it, but they replaced it with a way worse one. Uh, my chef's knife, you can still find, but like, yeah. These are products that I think they're good in categories where it's hard to find anything that's even good. So when I do find a good one, I want to tell people, hey, if you want a good ice cream scoop, I've tried a whole bunch of them. Most of them are terrible. Here's a good one. And now you can't even buy it anymore. I used your ice cream scoop badly yeah. last week. Yeah. I mean, you're, I feel like you're from one of those households that lets the ice cream get soft. Uh, I try not to, cause I don't want to, but it sometimes is necessary cause it's hard as a rock. Mm -hmm. Also part of it is that I spent a long time without an ice cream scoop. We do have one now and I, I bent so many spoons. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You gotta use, you're not bending this OXO ice yeah, cream scoop. No, you're right. You're right. I was also I was the, I was the first one to try to dig into it, and there was definitely oh. a there was definitely a uh, little bit of a hardened shell up at the top. It's of the not hardened shell. It was hard through and through. I keep my freezer right. uh, at a cold enough temperature that the ice cream is rock hard. And it's I rock hard for two for two reasons. One, any amount of sort of freeze thaw cycle in terms of your your freezer getting a little bit warm and freezing down getting a little bit wrong. It just makes bigger ice crystals. Like it screws up your ice cream. You do not want to to even thaw a little bit and refreeze your ice cream. So yeah. having it be hard frozen all the time preserves the quality of the ice cream as uh, however you manage to get it from the store to your house. And two, my habit used to be back when I was slightly less healthy than I am today, uh, the way I ate ice cream is I would pull the pint of Ben and Jerry's out of the freezer and sit on the couch with it. And having it hard frozen all the way through means that you can sit there on the couch and eat it. And by the time you're done having the amount you want, the rest of it hasn't 
melt it. So I apologize right. for my hard ice cream, but there is a method of my madness, but I do agree it is too hard for most people to scoop. That's why I have the industrial pointy tipped OXO ice cream scoop that if yeah. you put enough elbow grease into it and you have a good technique, you will be able to get a scoop out. No, your technique was very impressive. And I will say that the pointy, uh, the pointy tip of the ice cream scoop was also something that I was not used to or thinking about. Um, and if I had to do it all over again, I would try to do a better job. But like I said, I, I also, even with our ice cream scoop that we have, I feel like I am so bothered by the many spoons that I've been in the past <laughs> that I end up not putting the force into it that I really should. You have to be careful to using the force as a technique is if you take something that pointy and you put a lot of force in it, you will punch right through the side of the cardboard ice cream container if you're not yeah. careful. So there is actually a skill involved in being able to successfully use that tool and not destroy the container. Well, I love the, I mean, talking talking to the Studio Neat guys about Breville uh, just brought back to me that they are, again, they are in a commodity business like everyone else, but they have uh, decided to make a nicer thing. And like you said, not necessarily perfect, but they've decided that their brand promises that it's going to be nicer. It's going to be more expensive, but it's going to be nicer. And that that is like, <laughs> it's a little like saying their brand promises, hey, we care. Or at least we care more than those other guys who are selling you something crappy. Yeah, that's right. You just have to be faster than the other guy, not faster than the bear. Exactly right. So we care more than everyone else, even if our products aren't perfect, which is not the ideal slogan. It's I'm not in marketing. Don't at me. But I had that that thought while talking to them. And those guys obviously are really interested in what makes a good product. How does this product work? What is unique about it? What promise does it fulfill? And it struck me. I told them a story about how... My sister used to work in a distribution center for Target, and we were talking about Target at some point, and she said, oh, well, you got to understand, uh, in any given product category, there are eight different versions of it you can buy. And like number one is the dirt cheapest one you can possibly buy. And number eight is really nice, but, but super pricey. She said, you got to understand. Walmart wants number one. Target wants number three, <laughs> four. Uh, and this is how she described it to me. I don't know if it's still like that, but it made sense to me. It was like, well, actually that works. It's like the Walmart stuff is cheaper in all meaningful ways. The Target stuff is a little bit nicer. And like that's Target's brand promises. We're a little bit nicer. And I, I think you know, Breville is a little bit like that, where it's like, we're, we're, we're going to make more of an effort than everyone else. And as a result, I have lots of Breville stuff in my house. Walmart is not, though, cheaper in all meaningful ways, because that modifier you add on, it gets to the heart of it. It's like the, uh, you know, whatever that was, someone can Google for it. I don't know if it's a modern saying meant to be old or either way. Uh, how much money it costs to be poor. Uh, the rich person can buy a, a pair of boots for 10 times the price but they'll last in the rest of their life. The poor person has to buy a one-tenth price boot every single year, right? Yeah. So if you get the one quality thing from Walmart, yes, it's way cheaper and it's great that these products are accessible to poor people because they're less expensive. But if it breaks after a year, next year you got to buy another one. Whereas the person who bought the expensive one, in theory, that one lasts okay. longer. The problem is now that the 10 quality products only last like 1.5 times as long as the one quality products. So you get to pay more and also they still break after like a year and a half instead of a year. So we're in a bad situation with a lot of these appliances. Depends, but yeah. And and, and this is an oversimplification in the chat room, Matt pointed out. Like Target actually wants like number two, four, and six. I would say according to my sister, it was more like three 
maybe three, four, five, yeah. or three, five, and and seven. Like you, obviously, there's some marketing there. Walmart doesn't just have the number one; it probably also has the number two or three. But like the goal, the brand promise is we're going to get you the cheapest thing. It's going to be cheaper at Walmart. I had at one point one of the first times I think I ever went into Walmart um, was visiting my parents when they moved into their house in Arizona. We don't have, and people are like, oh yeah, I don't go into a Walmart. It's like literally, I've never lived anywhere near a Walmart. There is a Walmart in my hometown now, but it wasn't there when I lived there. And there is no Walmart in the county that I live in. None, not one. There are a lot of targets though, um, upscale. So, um, I go into them and, and at one point my dad was in the hospital and, uh, I was there longer than I thought it was going to be. And I actually bought like, I, I bought like a couple of shirts and like, I, look, I, I don't know what to say other than to say I bought a, I bought a new t-shirt and after two washes, I couldn't wear it anymore. Like it was cheap and terrible. And, and like the, the, and so much of what we buy is driven down because it's like, we need the price to be down. And it's like, well, we, we're going to, we're going to make it somewhere where people don't get paid very much to make it and it's not going to be very good. And, but it's cheap. And if all you're shopping on is the price tag, um, for whatever reason, because you're looking for a deal, because you just don't have the money to buy anything except for whatever is the lowest price. That's what you'll get. But I am fascinated by the 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 companies that try to buck that trend a little bit. And and you know, obviously, this is the story of Apple too. At one fundamental level, all of those years during the time when everybody looked at Mac users like, why are you? Why would you? What illness do you have that makes you want to use this weird non-standard computer instead of the one that literally everybody else does? One of my answers was always, yeah, but it's better. Yeah, I, I know it's not compatible, but it, it it's better. Apple does better stuff. And, they, you know, that has ebbed and flowed over time. But there is and there has always been the, the level below which Apple doesn't want to go. And so people will say, well, yeah. I can get a MacBook for $9.99, but I can get a Windows laptop for $300. And it's like, well, Apple could make a laptop for $300 if it wanted to, but it refuses. <laughs> it refuses to do that because it's got, as part of its brand, like it's got to be at a certain level and not go below it. Um, and Breville isn't Apple, but I, I, I get a little bit of that vibe from it, which is I would rather spend a little more money and get something that's nicer um, because I'd really rather use a product that's nicer. Also, when my T-Robot broke, um, I sent it to Breville and they sent me a new one. I, I thought I would have to pay them for them to fix it. They literally just sent me a new one, which was also one of those moments of like, oh, I kind of like this company. I like how they're thinking here. Yeah, Breville is bucking the trend a little bit, but they're not as up to the Apple level. And like Apple has, especially on hardware, has held the line very well in terms of quality. You can quibble about there's they're they're subject to the same sort of uh, economic forces that push down the quality of of everything. So they are they have been a victim of various commodity things and manufacturing you know realities that cause them to use parts that are lower quality than they might have been simply because it's it becomes cost prohibitive to do this thing in a totally custom way when you can get economically these cheap little components, right? But Apple pushes the industry in the other direction. Like they will push their suppliers to give them better quality stuff. They'll, they will demand from their suppliers things made without toxic chemicals, which is not, that's not a market force making that happen. It is Apple making that happen, right? Breville seems much more subject to the market forces that dictate the internal components of appliances than Apple sure. does. But they're both fighting they're both fighting that fight. And in the end, the things that Breville makes are 
less complicated, at least for now. Um, the, the computerized version of these is like, oh, you can buy a toaster with a camera and a little computer in it that looks to see how brown your toast is. And that is a burgeoning market. I feel like that market is, I'm, I look at that, I'm like, yeah, I know how tech products work and I know enough to stay away from that because uh, the odds of me buying the very first toaster oven that looks at how brown my toast is and still using it in 10 years are way lower than, you know, buying uh, or getting my Breville toaster, which I've now used for 11 years or so and it's still going strong. We use machine learning to determine the brownness of your toast. And, and don't, I don't poo-poo that. I think it's a good idea. It's just that, like, it's going to take a while for that to shake out to the mm. point where it is reliable and, you know, doesn't have security flaws and gets software updates. And it's like, I, I don't need to sign up for that any more than I really have to. I will have to eventually sign up for that everywhere, but I like it. I like the kinks to be worked out of it first before I jump into that. I get enough of that in, you know, in my day job dealing with, you know, computer technology products where I am signing up for all of that. Maybe don't need it on my toaster. Yeah. When we're talking about uh, Target and Walmart and all that, I wanted to mention one of the uh, examples I've got is that I bought these uh, Waffle Henleys at... I don't actually know where. I think maybe it, you wore one to my house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think it was long sleeves. Um, I think it was back in the day. I bought them at. I'm gonna say something like Mervin's or something. A long gone department <laughs> store, but like Mola? not up, not upscale at all. And I don't know how much they cost, but my guess is it gonna be it was like twenty or thirty dollars. I don't know. It could have been forty. I had two of them a red one and a blue one and i wore them i wore them out and beyond out because i loved them and after i had them about 5 years i realized i need uh to buy more of these because i love them and i'm wearing them all the time and then then the, my ghost appears on your shoulder and says jason do they still make them if the perfect time to have bought them <laughs> was when you bought the others, but then you mm -hmm. didn't, because you know you don't know which is the product that you buy. One in twenty products that you buy is the one you love, and you want to have them for the rest of your life. Uh, well, I was saying you, you have to the the practice you have to get better at is like once you realize, even if it's a year into it, six months, once you realize that you like them, that's the time to buy multiples, not waiting till they actually wear out. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So, so I went at that point and I began my quest to find them. And I could never, I found lots of Waffle Henleys at all sorts of different places, at Target, at Mervyn's, on the internet, all these places. And I bought a bunch of them and none of them were any good. None of them had good sleeves. Um, they were thin. Uh, they didn't, they weren't hemmed at the bottom. So they just kind of like splayed out all loose and thin and awful instead of having a little hem at the bottom so that they'd be kind of, so so I ended up for years like wearing through that red and the blue. The blue died at some point and I still wore the red one, but I couldn't, I was told like <laughs> by officials within my house, I couldn't wear it in public anymore, but I still wore it in the house or I could wear it in public only if it was covered and I was never going to take off whatever was covering it. They were falling apart, but I loved them so much. And I, I, I went on this quest and I could never find anything that was remotely a match for it. And I tried and like, Two years ago for Christmas, Lauren got me a Waffle Henley. And I said, oh my God, this is so close. Not the same, but this is so close. It was actually a little heavier than I wanted it to be. Um, but it was so close to those, the ones that I had gotten back in the day. Um, and it was from American Giant. 
another company that's like they make them in America and the goal is quality and not hitting a price point. And I went to their website and discovered that she had bought me the heavy Waffle Henley, but they also had a regular Waffle Henley. And I ordered that one. And that was the jackpot. That was like, yes, this is exactly like almost identical to what I had gotten 15 years before, 20 years. Actually, I got to say, there's a picture of me holding my newborn daughter wearing that red one. So it's more than 20 years ago. Uh, Probably a lot more than 25 years ago. I had that shirt a long time, like 20 years I had that shirt. So I found it and I was like, oh my God. So I, I bought the one and it was perfect. And then what I did, John, of course, is I immediately ordered one of every color <laughs> that they made. But my point in telling this story is that Waffle Henley I got at Mervyn's that lasted for 20 years in 1998 cost 30 bucks. The Waffle Henley from American Giant costs 100 bucks. And while time has marched on and inflation happens, all of that is true. Um, $100 today and $30 in 1998 are not the same, but they're, they're closer. But what's happened in that time also is the pressure for most retailers of clothing in the U.S. has been to get the price down or hold it constant. And I think that that's why I never got one over the, over the intervening 20 years is because um, they couldn't make them thirty dollars ones. I was looking for that. Well, no, they they had to hold their price point. It's a little bit like saying Apple has the new M2 MacBook Air and it doesn't cost nine ninety nine because mm-hmm. they can't hold it there. I think that the 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 clothing manufacturers are like, we got to hold the price point; it can't go up. And so as a result, they started. They took out the hem, they made lighter fabric, and they just made it worse and worse and worse. And all those that I was trying to buy that were never any good, I think they were the replacements for what I bought. They were just decontenting the shirt because they like had to make it cheaper. And then I turn around and like, do I like that this shirt that I love costs a hundred bucks? No, but if, but I, I have some hopes that they're going to last, if not 20 years, 10 years, and they're good when I wear them. But it was quite a, it was quite a moment of, of understanding that like, oh, I see what happened here is that the thing that I bought at some kind of semi crappy department store in the late nineties for 30 bucks or 25 bucks to get that. Now you got to spend a hundred bucks. Did you do the inflation calculator just to double check that $30 in 1990 is not a hundred? Well, so with clothes and cars and many other things, there's a lot of cases where there was a moment in time where the geopolitical balance was such that people could be exploited extra hard at one part of the earth that gave us a $30 high quality hand yes. here. And that time passed sure. kind of like a plastic uh, recycling, right? In China. Right. And right. so there's, there's used to have a price. No, it doesn't. These are terrible imbalances in the world that for a moment gave us more value than uh, than was healthy. And now like that has slightly changed the balance of. But uh, it, it's so difficult to tell with, with things like clothes. But uh, but yeah, like uh, downward price pressure is good. But, um, you know, this the thing I was talking about before I finally found it. It was uh, Terry Pratchett, 1993, speaking of the 90s, uh, from the, one of the uh, the Men at Arms Discworld novel. It's the character Sam Vines, the boot theory of socio socioeconomic unfairness. We'll link to the Wikipedia page because, of course, this one theory has an entire Wikipedia page at boots underscore theory. Um, yeah, it, it, it's like I, I what you would think would be healthier. Uh, not obviously the rich person thing where everything costs a bazillion dollars for no reason and the margins are gigantic, but simply that. Uh, you know, the, the economic rising tide is such that uh, individuals are 
making enough money to be able to buy the one pair of good boots instead of the hundreds of pair of crappy boots, right? Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, the same pressures that make it so that we need to make the boots cheaper and cheaper every single year also, uh, you know, also exert downward wage pressure on workers who don't have yes. enough power as compared to corporations. And so it's that's the know. Walmart story, right? Is that it, it's not just that Walmart looks for for price number one, quality number one. It's also that Walmart doesn't want to pr- play price one or mm-hmm. they go to the makers of price three and they say, uh, you need to make it for price one. And then they're like, oh God, how do we do that? And and and, and yeah, there, it, it, there are a lot of ramifications here. I bring all this up mostly just to say that I do admire that there are companies that say we are not we're not going to ba- base our brand and our business on chasing the bottom line of like we can we can cut costs like not that they don't worry about their costs but that they like part of what we do is making the thing that's nicer and selling it for more to the people who care that it's that it's better and and i love those companies even though sometimes I wince at the products, uh, prices, <laughs> and sometimes I don't buy them because I'm like, no, 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 that's too much. But I do appreciate that they exist. And 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 that's how I ended up with Breville stuff in my kitchen. And I think why you did in yours. And that's why I'm wearing right an American giant um, uh, button Henley right now, in fact. Yeah, the, the waffle maker, the last item on my list is the most egregious because you know this is the one where the margins are the biggest and it is just yeah. so expensive for what you get. But the the sad reality is that all the other waffle makers I tried were so bad that I was, you know, I'm I'm in the position where I can afford to buy a horrendously expensive waffle iron. So I did, but I don't feel good about it. But boy, is it a good waffle iron, but it is not worth the price they're selling it for. It is not like the Mac stuff where it's like, oh, a Mac laptop. Think like Rolex, where it's like, if you just need to tell the time on your witch, on, on your wrist, sorry, you know, don't don't buy a Rolex because the, the price is so disconnected from the value. Uh, although you could argue for collectability or whatever, but there's no collectability to this waffle maker. It is just a too expensive waffle maker, but yeah. all the other ones I tried were terrible. Look, I don't want to spend a hundred dollars on a shirt. I don't, I really, 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 really don't. But after 25 years, I was like, yeah, I will. <laughs> I will. And they're very good. They're very good. All right. Um, John, thank you so much for being on upgrade. Uh, again, I, I enjoy chatting with you in person and on other podcasts, but it, it's nice to do it in, in this little corner of my podcast world. Yeah. We managed to fit it in, in the, uh, dog window, the dog left, uh, leaving us in blessed silence. And I don't think she's returned yet. Ah, oh, perfect. I like fitting in the dog window. That's good. It's like a dog door, but mm-hmm. people can fit in it. Podcasts can fit in it. It's great. Well, people can check you out uh, atp.fm for Accidental Tech Podcast here at Relay. Reconcilable differences with our buddy Merlin. Robot or not at The Incomparable uh, where John and I deal with thorny issues of existence. Uh, Listened to by uh, philosophy professors apparently, which I find both delightful and unnerving. (laughs) And don't forget the upcoming episode of The Incomparable where you can hear us talk about Andor. Andor, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do fear, John, though, that in the end, um, the thing we'll be most remembered for is all the academic citations to Robot or Not. Fear? That's great. This is the only legacy I'm going to have. It's like, boy, expert on robots or not. If only I could get an academic citation for follow-up, but it seems like that's not happening. It's probably, probably not. All right. Um, you can find me, Jay Snell, on Twitter, of course. Uh, and uh, sure, Jay Snell at Mastodon.social. Go ahead. Uh, go nuts and uh, sixcolors.com is a great place to go for all of my stuff Mike will be back next week yay but until then say goodbye John Syracuse 
You're cheering for me leaving? Fine, get Mike back. You don't like me? Get your regular host, I don't care. Come back, Mike! John is being mean to me! 